Hello and welcome. This is uh, For All Time. Yeah, that's the name of the podcast. This is episode 15. My name is Don Johnson. It is Friday, February 11th, 2022. Um, oh, yeah. And if, if I'm going to mention at the top of the show this time, if you have any comments about the show or you'd like to communicate with the program, 505-557-7932. Plus one if you're out of the country. And uh, today, we're just going to cover some uh, books and papers that I've had stacked up. And uh, we're going to get through them. We're going to read them until I run out of time to read them. So the first thing that I've been looking at... There we go. So the first thing I've been looking at is uh, Stephen King's Memoir of the Craft on writing. He wrote this about 20-ish years ago. Um, now there's contributions from two sons. right to the middle of the book and reading an interesting little essay that he wrote that is basically a a meditation on the concept of writing but not just the concept of writing I would also say uh, let's see what's the best way to say I would say a meditation on the concept of um, the purpose of the written word what writing is telepathy of course It's amusing when you stop to think about it. For years, people have argued about whether or not such a thing exists. Folks like J.B. Ryan have busted their brains trying to create a valid testing process to isolate it. And all the time, it's been right there, lying out in the open, like Mr. Poe's purloined letter. All the arts depend upon telepathy to some degree. But I believe that writing offers the purest distillation. Perhaps I'm prejudiced, but even if I am, we may, as excuse me. Perhaps I'm prejudiced, but even if I am, we may as well stick with writing, since that's what we came here to think and talk about. My name is Stephen King, and I'm writing the first draft of this part at my desk, the one under the eave, on a snowy morning in December of 1997. There are things on my mind. Some are worries, bad eyes, Christmas shopping not even started, wife under the weather with a virus. Some are good things. Our younger son made a surprise visit home from college. I got to play Vince Taylor's brand new Cadillac with the wallflowers at a concert. Very 1997. But right now, all that stuff is up top. I'm in another place, a basement place, where there are lots of bright lights and clear images. This is a place I built for myself over the years. It's a far-seeing place. I know it's a little strange, a little bit of a contradiction, that a far-seeing place should also be a basement place, but that's how it is with me. If you construct your own far-seeing place, you might put it in a treetop, or on the roof of the World Trade Center, or on the edge of the Grand Canyon. That's your little red wagon, as Mr. McCammon says in one of his novels. Mr. Robert McCann. Interesting. I'll have to open up one of those. This book is scheduled to be published in the late summer or early fall of 2000. And we're reading it 22 years later. If that's how things work out, then you are somewhere downstream the timeline from me. But you're quite likely in your own far-seeing place, the one where you go to receive telepathic messages. Not that you have to be there. Books are uniquely portable magic. I usually listen to one in the car, Always unabridged. I think abridged audiobooks are the pits. Sounds like he's a real podcast man these days, if I had any guesses. You just never know when you'll want to escape 
a mile-long line at, toll, at a toll booth plaza, the 15 minutes you have to spend in the hall of some boring college building waiting for your advisor, who's got some yank off in there, threatening to commit suicide because he or she is flunking custom cur... <laughs> custom curm furling 101 was the fanciful class he came up with to come out so you can get his signature on a drop-off card, airport boarding lounges, laundromats on rainy afternoons. There you go. Good podcast location. And the absolute worst, which is the doctor's office, when the guy is running late and you have to wait half an hour in order to have something sensitive mauled. (laughs) Says a Stephen King problem. At such times, I found a book vital. If I have to spend time in purgatory before going to one place or the other, I guess I'll be all right as long as there's a lending library. If there is, it's probably stocked with nothing but novels by Danielle Steele and chicken soup books. Ha ha, joke's on you, Steve. So I read where I can, but I have a favorite place, and probably you do too. A place where the light is good, and the vibe is usually strong. For me, it's the blue chair in my study. For you, it might be the couch on the sun porch, the rocker in the kitchen, or maybe it's propped up in your bed. Reading in bed can be a a heaven, assuming you get just the right amount of light on the page and aren't prone to spilling your coffee or cognac on the sheets. So let's assume you're in your favorite receiving place, just as I am in the place where I do my best transmitting. We'll have to perform our mentalist routine, not just over distance, but over time as well. Yet that presents no real problem. If we can still read Dickens, Shakespeare, and with the help of a footnote or two, Heterodotus, I think we can manage the gap between 1997 and 2000, or perhaps uh, 2000 and uh, 2022. And here we go, actual telepathy in action. Through a medium, even, I add as an editor's note. You'll notice I have nothing up my sleeves, and that lips never move. Neither, most likely, do yours. Oh, they do. (laughs) Look, here's a table covered with a red cloth. Let's visualize. Let me start again. Hmm. Look, here's a table covered with a red cloth. On it is is a cage the size of a small fish aquarium. In the cage is a white rabbit with a pink nose and pink-rimmed eyes. On its front paws, in its front paws, is a carrot stub upon which it is consistently and contentedly munching. On its back, clearly marked in blue ink, is the numeral 8. Do we see the same thing? We'd have to get together and compare notes to make absolutely sure, but I think we do. There will be necessary variations, of course. Some receivers will see a cloth which is turkey red. Some will see one that's scarlet, while others may still see other shades. To colorblind receivers, the red tablecloth is the dark gray of cigar ashes. Some may see scalloped edges. Some may see straight ones. Decorative souls may add a little lace and welcome. My tablecloth is your tablecloth. Knock yourself out. Likewise, the matter of the cage leaves quite a lot of room for individual interpretation. For one thing, it is described in terms of rough comparison, which is useful only if you and I see the world and measure the things in it with the similar eyes. It is easy to become careless when making rough comparisons. But the alternative is a prissy attention to detail that takes all the fun out of writing. What am I going to say? On the table, there is a cage, three feet, six inches in length, two feet in width, and 14 inches high. That's not prose. That's an instruction manual. The paragraph also doesn't tell us what sort of material the cage is made of. Wire mesh? Steel rods? Glass? But does it really matter? We all understand the cage is a see-through medium, and beyond that, we don't care. 
The most interesting thing here isn't even the carrot-munching rabbit in the cage, but the number on its back. Not a 6, not a 4, not a 19.5. It's an 8. This is where you're looking at, and we all see it. I didn't tell you. You didn't ask me. I never open my mouth, and you never open yours. We're not even in the same year together, let alone the same room. Except, we are together. We're close. We're having a meeting of the minds. I sent you a table with a red cloth on it, a cage, a rabbit, and the number 8 in blue ink. You got them all, especially that blue 8. We've engaged in an act of telepathy. No mythy mountain shit, real telepathy. I'm not going to belabor the point, but before we go any further, you have to understand that I'm not trying to be cute. There is a point to be made. You can approach the act of writing with nervousness, excitement, hopefulness, or even despair. The sense that you can never completely put on the page what's in your mind and heart. You come to the act with your fists clenched and your eyes narrowed, ready to kick ass and take down names. You come to it because you want a girl to marry you or because you want to change the world. Come to it anyway, but lightly. Let me say it again. You must not come lightly to the blank page. I'm not asking you to come reverently or unquestioningly. I'm not asking you to be politically correct or cast aside your sense of humor. Please, God, you have one. This isn't a popularity contest. It's not the moral Olympics, and it's not church. But it is writing, damn it, not the washing of a car or the putting on of eyeliner. If you can take it seriously, we can do business. If you can't or won't, it's time for you to close the book and do something else. Wash the car, maybe. Uh, That's my favorite uh, essay that I've taken from his book so far. Love it. It's wonderful. Uh, It's especially wonderful just to uh, read it and... uh, read it and take away the fact that Stephen King wrote it. I find that to be the most uh, elemental. Mm. The element I enjoy the most. Here is a, uh, this is like an advertisement supplement to the local paper, but I just find it incredibly fascinating um, just to read to you a little bit of a window into um, something that they stick into the paper practically every day. Uh, a, a whole section with four or five pages. Uh, couple enjoy social events volunteering at Babcock Ranch. Chrissy and Jerry Hero, Babcock Ranch residents since 2019, are involved in almost all the community's events. The town's activities and lifestyle team know they can count on them not as participants but as top volunteers. Residents and visitors are likely to meet Chrissy upon arrival at guest check-in and see her later, dancing the night away. Quote, if there's music, I'm up there dancing, she said. We're on the A-team, added Jerry, who often tends bar. We volunteer for almost every event. Chrissy and Jerry are enjoying this new chapter and the opportunity to volunteer, something they were unable to do with full-time careers in Rhode Island. Chrissy at CVS headquarters, uh, Jerry as the CEO of a nonprofit organization. And to think, all it took was the last big snowstorm to fast-track their retirement plans. The couple had owned a Punta Gorda condo for several years, with Jerry often making solo excursions to play golf. Quote, I told him I was never moving to Florida. Only old people live there, Chrissy said. Then, winter 2014 happened. I was shoveling. Jerry was snowblowing. And I said to him, I'm done, recalled Chrissy. And as soon as we moved down, I ate my words. The West Coast had a totally different feel than the rest of Florida. It was slower, and the weather and people are so nice. As full-time Florida residents, the Heroes were leaning 
and learning about the new town of Babcock Ranch and decided to visit in 2018 after reading about its first residence. They returned frequently throughout the year, always visiting Slater's Goods and Provision, a market and cafe in downtown Founders Square, and thinking it would be nice to live in Babcock Ranch someday. Someday materialized that October when the couple bought a Pulte home in the Parkside neighborhood, moving in the following May on their 41st anniversary. Babcock Ranch was a really great uh, was really starting to grow, said Jerry. There were more people coming and more homes being built. It was exciting. A new Publix and the Crescent B Commons shopping center were on the horizon as well. Also growing was the town's schedule of events and activities, from golf cart parades to Prosecco on the pier and brews on the boardwalk to weekly Friday night concerts and tribute bands performing under the band uh, un- performing under the band shell at Founders Square and the need for volunteers. The Heroes selected a three-bedroom, two-bathroom plan by Pulte Homes, just shy of, seven, shy of 1,700 square feet. Almost as an antithesis to there. Oh, gonna have to go to 4D. Large Rhode Island home. Okay, antithesis. Oh, that's a beautiful uh, band shell. I see that. We came from a big house in Rhode Island, and I didn't want another big house, Jerry explained. We like the openness of the kitchen, breakfast cafe, and great room. The couple also enjoys an active lifestyle beyond volunteer events. If it's Wednesday afternoon, Chrissy is likely playing Mahjong. On Thursday, it's hand and foot. She's jokingly adamant when declaring she won't volunteer for bingo, instead preferring to play. People can be as busy and as active as they want at Babcock Ranch, said Jerry. Activities, events, and outdoor amenities are woven into the social fabric of Babcock Ranch's neighborly lifestyle, building community in every sense of the word. From music to art, festivals to holiday activities, the events at Babcock Ranch provide a social and creative outlet for residents and guests and enhance the vibrancy of our community, said Sid Kitson, chairman and CEO of Kitson & Partners, who is developing America's first solar-powered town. We are creating a hometown feel. We want this to be a place for our residents to enjoy and for the community at large to also experience. Chrissy and Jerry also participate in regular neighborhood cleanups organized by a local church and are among the 18 residents certified as members of the new community emergency response team through the sheriff's office. Despite their community involvement, the couple often take a co-starring role to Bailey, their yellow Labrador, during walks around the neighborhood. Everyone knows her, said Chrissy. Certain neighbors give her cookies, and Bailey will stop at their homes waiting. Since moving to Badcock Ranch, the heroes have met the town's first residents, and the second, and third, and so on. We're part of the pioneer group, said Chrissy. There are so many residents now, and by volunteering, we met a lot of people. It is a great community. Everyone is friendly, and your background doesn't matter. I've never lived in a community like this. Learn more about Babcock Ranch's active community-focused lifestyle by visiting BabcockRanch.com today or calling 941-235-6901 to speak with a town ambassador. And a little inset uh, uh, description here. Babcock Ranch offers homes from seven home builders in seven neighborhoods with additional builders and newly introduced neighborhoods coming soon. Anyway, the reason that I read that... It's perhaps inspiration for you to go and research what is going on with Florida real estate right now. Go and take a look at that. Look up BabcockRanch.com and, and tell me what you think. What do you think is the true nature of what's happening there? Now I continue on a little bit. Let's see. Um, let me get to where we're going here. 
many papers and books. Okay. This is from uh, today's news press, Friday, February 11th, 2022. Okay. Five Southwest Florida hospitals among the top 100. Facilities in Best 100 list are among the top 2% in nation, says HealthGrade's ratings firm based in Colorado. By Liz Freeman of the Naples Daily News. Five Southwest Florida hospitals are among the top 100 hospitals in the U.S., according to new ratings by HealthGrade's... It must be a data firm. Okay. Memorial Hospital, Health Park Medical Center, and Cape Coral Hospital are among the Best 100 hospitals in the country, according to Colorado-based ratings firm... All three are part of the publicly operated Lee Health System in Lee County, Lee Health's fourth acute care hospital. Gulf Coast Medical Center is also ranked among the nation's top 250 hospitals by health grades. The four acute care hospitals have a combined 1,865 beds and handle 1.5 million patient visits a year with $2 billion in an annual budget. In Collier County, the NCH Healthcare System's two campuses, North Naples and Baker Hospitals, make the top 100 list. The NCH hospitals have a combined 713 beds and saw 170,000 patient visits in 2021 and total revenue of $791 million, according to financial disclosures, for the fiscal year ending September 30th. HealthGrades is one of several hospital ratings that come out each year or more frequently. Others include LeapFrog, U.S. News and World Report, and the federal government has its own CMS star ratings. They are designed to help consumers gain understanding of how hospitals are performing and help them decide where to get inpatient medical care when they need it. Continues, but that's basically what I wanted to get to. Give you a little flavor of the area. I continue to this. Focus turns to 1930s, segregated gravesite. Groups make push to get cemetery the same recognition as the white pioneers. Here's a picture of a concrete post in, in much disrepair, probably never even touched, marked with a basic set of uh, flowers from perhaps like a Home Depot. This plain post marks the grave of a black resident from when graveyards were segregated in Collier County. It's one of four posts at the southwest corner of Goodlett Frank and Pine Ridge Roads in Naples. By Carl Schneider of the Naples Daily News. On the southwest corner of the bustling intersection at Goodlett Frank and Pine Ridge Roads, four cement posts, some leaning, most discolored, all easily ignored, are the only evidence that eight black bodies lie in graves below. There are no signs, no headstones, no fencing. These are the unmarked graves from a segregated cemetery plot once marked N for Negro. The other graves plot white. A plot W for white are also in an unmarked site in front of a nearby strip mall containing an Asian market, containing an Asian market and Pelican Larry's. The cemetery was originally in the city, and the bodies were moved in the 1930s, Vincent Keyes, president of Collier County's NAACP, said. Due to segregation and laws during that time, I'm talking about Jim Crow laws. It was not permitted, as in life, that blacks were to live or associate with whites, and so the same was in death. The bodies could not be buried together. 
The gravesites were originally located at St. Anne Catholic Church in Naples, but were moved as the city grew. Now Keys, along with the Community Foundation of Collier County, are pushing for the gravesites to receive the same treatment as the Rosemary, the Rosemary Cemetery on US-41, which was known as Unit B from the same original site. I'm asking that they will be given the same recognition as the white pioneers who helped build the city as well as the county, Keyes said. It's NAACP's obligation to remember these forgotten early pioneers. Eileen Connolly Kiesler, president and CEO of the Community Foundation, said nobody knows the gra- uh, nobody knows the gravesite is there, even though it's part of the history of the community. The foundation has put forward a ten thousand dollar grant to help get the restoration efforts started and pay for signage to identify the site. Quote, it's part of the community betterment around the fact that we believe people died there when the railroad went through Goodlett Frank. Connolly. uh, Connolly Kiesler said, We want to make sure people know it's there. It is the history of what went down in Collier. Keyes said seven adults and one child are buried at the site, and while no one knows who is buried there, he has some thoughts. They could have been railroad workers who were caught up in a convict leasing system, he said. During the Jim Crow era, most white Americans had the attitude that there was only one place for blacks, slavery, Keyes said. Laws started being passed around, and white people could walk up to a black man, say they owe them money, and get them locked up and put on a chain gang. That work was for miners and railroads, and they had to pay in labor until the so-called debt was satisfied. Black workers were sold right back into slavery, he said, and if no one followed up with those stuck in the system, they could be totally forgotten. The identities of the people buried in the graves remain unknown, and Amanda Townsend, director of Collier County Museums, said it's possible that the bodies were buried after the railroad was already completed. Quote, There is commonly in the record, but not the primary source, historical record, newspaper articles written about this in the past, there is an idea floating around that these are the graves of railroad, railroad workers, she said. I'm not saying they're not, but it is unlikely. It is likely that the historical records were lost in 1960 during during Hurricane Donna, but a survey drawing from 1944 shows the number of graves. This is not just a problem in Collier. It's across the state, Keyes said. There are a lot of forgotten cemeteries with no identification of the bodies in them. County commissioners in December unanimously voted to acquire Plot N to, quote, perform necessary improvements and annual maintenance to conform with the standards similar to the county-owned Rosemary Cemetery in order to honor and remember our community's forebears. Commissioners agreed to put forward about 27500 for annual maintenance. Townsend said there are also plans to have the county gain ownership of Plot W and to put a fence and appropriate signs there too. Essentially, the goal would be to put in little fences around and headstones in. She said... Since this is a historic cemetery, we don't want it to be lush and green. We would not irrigate, sod, or plant it with anything that that was maintenance-needy, because that wouldn't be true to what a cemetery would have looked like in the 30s. Keyes said he is grateful for the work by the Foundation, the County, and the City of Naples to get this work started. Quote, regardless of who they are, they deserve a decent resting place, he said. It's a tragedy, but at the same time, they have need but at the same time they need final resting places equality for all is a must 
even in death. Carl Schneider is a Naples Daily News reporter. You can reach him at kschneider at gannett.com. Follow him on Twitter at Carl Starts with K. There you go. Um, it's a little bit more history of our early uh, communities here. They were truly living off in uh, a land unknown to most and uh, just making their own path. Okay. Um, now I'm going to read from a book that I, well, it, it's a, it's a memoir by Val Kilmer, a memoir, it's, it's best to say that it's a memoir and not an autobiography called I'm Your Huckleberry. Okay. And I'm going to skip to page 109 here, where he has a little segment um, on New Mexico. And you judge everything for yourself. I don't, I don't need to add commentary to this. New Mexico is called, this is the name of the chapter, New Mexico is called the Land of Enchantment, or, as I'm proud to have coined, the Land of Entrapment. Definitely did not coin that. People have been saying that longer than he's been saying that for 100% certain. But I continue. Grow as it goes. That's the slogan for New Mexico, taken from an ancient poem by the Roman philosopher Lucretius. It's an apt description of my relationship to a state that plays a huge part in my story where people aren't the only characters. Places can be major characters. In introducing the character of New Mexico, my original intention was to write a long list of everything that is wrong with the state. It's so touristy. All strip malls. Be careful of the fake turquoise. The idea was to scare people away so New Mexico would not suffer from overcrowding and all the other deadly drawbacks that have come with unchecked invasion. I wanted to echo Georgia O'Keeffe, who said, When I got to New Mexico, I saw it. It was my country. It's something that's in the air. It's different. The sky is different. I shouldn't say too much about it because other people may be interested, and I don't want them interested, O'Keeffe said. She also said, I hate flowers. I paint them because they're cheaper than models, and they don't move. He added, But although I feel protective about my adopted state, I cannot restrain myself. I must extol its glorious virtues. Go there, relish its beauty, but please clean up after yourselves or leave ever so light carbon footprints. Thank you. It is a cliche, or perhaps critical to my sensibility, that after my childhood visits with my family, I rediscovered New Mexico through a siren of sorts. A fascinating woman with a boring name, Jane Smith. We met at Hollywood Mega... Uh, mm. We met at Hollywood mega agent Sue Menger's house. I was brushing shoulders with superstars when Michael Jackson walked in. He had a lady on his arm who was one of the most gorgeous people I'd ever witnessed, whom he discarded like an umbrella as soon as he walked in the door. As he moved through the room, heads turned like we were in a choreographed commercial. Heads turned like we were in a choreographed commercial and was beelining for none other than my own former girlfriend, Cher. I was in my 20s, Jane in her 40s. By then, Cher and I were no longer a couple. If I could describe our breakup, I would. But I can't, because it never really happened. At least not formally. She never said, Val, I'm through with you. And I never said, that's it, Cher, we're history. 
Our histories ran on parallel tracks. Our friendship deepened. We just moved on. Jane Smith had a wealthy swagger about her. She spoke about her home state, New Mexico, as though she were speaking of a long-lost soulmate. When she invited me to visit her there, I did. She was living with a locally famous lesbian, Betty Stewart, who was not Jane's lover, but a strong partner. They cherished each other. Betty was famous for building classic territorial-style, triple-thick adobe homes for millionaires across Santa Fe. She was part artist, part builder. Everyone warned me as soon as they found out I was staying in one of Jane's guest rooms on Betty's property that I was likely to wake up with a gun in my face or something similarly dramatic. But to their surprise, Betty and I got along immediately and famously. I don't know why or how. Perhaps that it's she hailed from Texas and my father born in the panhandle. And my father was born in the panhandle. Texas liked Texans like that about me, and I don't mind sharing that fact within the first two minutes of meeting a Texan. The saying is true. Don't mess with them about their state, or they will spend the rest of the night telling you about how they have seriously contemplated seceding themselves from our great experiment. But back to New Mexico, a state in which you are obligated to treat people right. But back to New Mexico, a state in which you are obligated to treat people right, Val Kilmer. <clears throat> Years later, as New Mexico began, became my spiritual home, I befriended Sam Shepard, who exemplified those deeply human qualities of empathy and compassion. So while it was a mortal goddess who initially called me back to my ancestors' land, I believe it was the god of love that had me return again and again to the state where, like my father, I longed not only to live on its land, but to possess a large parcel of it for myself. That parcel was precious. I loved it and lost it, but all that's later, and my heart still aches. In my early trips to New Mexico, I had, in addition to my connection with she of the wealthy swagger, another pivotal experience. This one was seismic. I encountered an angel. I was wide awake. I was indoors. It happened on my birthday. I had just turned 24. I was asleep and awoke suddenly to an amorphous black figure before me. It will ruin the absolute gravity of this moment, but in truth, this dark angel looked very like Darth Vader, though without the helmet. The figure seemed to be covered in black, in a black shroud, that every now and again revealed the slightest outline of a face. It took up space in an infinitely eternal way. I was afraid. I addressed it by saying in my mind, I can feel you reading my mind. He replied, that's not what's happening. Well, that proved it, didn't it? It's indescribable when someone or something can read your mind, and I said so. And I said so, or thought it. I have nowhere to hide. I knew this was a sacred encounter, and yet, like Mary or Moses, I felt fear. He then reached in, extracted my heart, and held it before me. It had a purple-blackish hue, leading me to joke. Is it that bad? No, he said. I'm just giving you a bigger one. The bigger heart, spinning rather than beating, was placed inside my body. At first I thought it was the angel of death before realizing it was the angel of life. I wish I could eludicate the experience more than I have already done. <laughs> elucidate, excuse me. I wish I could elucidate the experience more than I have already done, but I can't. It simply happened. I remember pinching myself as hard as I could in hopes of bruising myself so that if I could fall back asleep or was put 
to sleep by this dark angel, I would be able to prove to myself this was a real experience. I looked at my clock and noticed it was moments before I was born that morning 24 years ago. Somehow the spell was over, and just as I thought, I did fall fast asleep and woke up the next day with a bruise on my arm. I have nothing else to say about this except that I am grateful for my new heart. It has served me well, and I've only just begun to use it. Hmm. I have always affirmed life in the spiritual realm. At the same time, I love living and the beauty of shapes and the variety of life in the material world. That love is undergirdled by the rigors of backpacking. I'm a backpacking freak. I devour books like Colin Fletcher's The Man Who Walked Through Time, his riveting chronicle of trekking from one end of the Grand Canyon to the other. So when I got word that Hollywood genius Jeffrey Katzenberg was organizing a rafting trip down that same canyon, I was waiting for an invitation that never came. It's the only time in my career I was jealous of Tom Cruise, and this was before Top Gun. Jeffrey included Tom on the list. Was that because his star turn in Risky Business outshined my turn in Top Secret, or was it Tom's publicist? Well, if it was his publicist, I'd hire her, except she wasn't buying me. She suggested I employ a less powerful flack who specialize in selling pretty faces. Forced humility is always good for the soul, but I can't say I was happy. I decided to go with no publicists at all. Then came a blissful surprise of romance. I encountered Ellen Barkin, who had the best smile in all five boroughs. She was a proud native of the Bronx. One romance was as whimsical as it was a whirlwind. This was after she'd been in Diner with Mickey Rourke and Tender Mercies by, with Robert Duvall. I remember her wit, her sultry eyes, but mostly her laugh and her hair. Who remembers the softness of a woman's hair? If you ever have a chance to consensually ever so gently touch Ellen's hair, it would be worth the look she's going to drop on you. Ellen has a hell of a stare. I was crazy for her, and we had some fabulous months window shopping on Rodeo Drive by day and barbecuing by night, crushing ice and swishing lemons and limes in one of those weird board games of summer, of summer love. My freezer agrees. Ellen was one of the enchantresses who got away, no doubt due to my unmanageable preoccupations, my neglect. I want to call it benevolent neglect, but I'm afraid that term is a bit too self-serving. Is it ever enough to say, when it comes to women, I'm a fool? In my defense, I want to cite a thousand popular songs. I want to avoid the entire subject of my relationship to women, but I can't, and I won't. All I can do is try my damnedest to be honest, honest about my absolute failings to take advantage of the scores of opportunities afforded to me by the answer to prayers. As I wrote in my one-man show, Citizen Twain, about the honorary founding father, I think it ain't that prayer doesn't work, it's that we don't like the answers. Romance among actors is no simple matter. We were always on edge and always on the move. The phone rings and we're off to London or back to, L to L.A. from New York. We're not only driven to perform our craft, but also propelled, like athletes, by the inbred competition of show business. We run into each other at parties, on backlots, in agents' offices. We kiss. We hug. We wish one another well. We mean it. We don't mean it. We feel bad for not meaning it. But our drive, whose source remains a mystery, does not diminish. Therefore, romance is at once a necessity, a delight, and its own special thrill. As I've said concerning artistic projects, I am subject to distraction. I am subject to impetuosity. 
The same goes for romance. I take it in seriously. I accept these liaisons as lovely interludes. Some lasted for years, some for months. All last forever. And um, clearly that had a lot to do with New Mexico, but I just really enjoyed that one um, particular extract. Okay, on to the next thing. This is in the local paper, today's local paper. Dominic Fike of Euphoria, New Music is Coming Soon by Charles Runnels of the Naples Daily News. It's been a busy year for actor-singer Dominic Fike, including a major role on the hit TV show Euphoria. But the Naples native says that he's finally ready to start making music again. Fike, 26, heads to upstate New York soon to record songs for his next album. The follow-up to his critically praised 2020 debut, What Could Possibly Go Wrong? The plan, to write songs, experiment in the recording studio, and see what happens. I'll throw paint at the wall, Fike says in a Zoom call from his home in Los Angeles. I do have some ideas. His managers have been pushing him to release new music and take advantage of his high-profile role as the laid-back guitar-playing Elliot in the hit HBO series Euphoria. Ever since the whole TV show thing, everyone really wants me to put new music out, he says. So I figure I'll go record for a month. I'll come back with however many songs I have, mix and master them, and hand them over. Fike had already started working on his second album in 2020, but he says he changed his mind about those songs. Then life got busy, largely due to his debut acting gig on Euphoria, and music moved to the back burner. The last year and a half was kind of a roller coaster, in a weird way, he says. A lot happened in my personal life, I think. I took a break from music and whatnot. And eventually, I kind of hopped back on and started working again. Now, he's going into the studio with some song ideas but no fully written songs. The idea is to experiment and maybe get inspired by the New York countryside. I usually go with whatever the landscape is. You know what I mean? He says, when I record in Hawaii, I'm in the sun and the beach all day. When I record here in Los Angeles, it's kind of stale because LA is kind of stale. The air is the same. Everywhere is the same. There are no bugs. (laughs) In Florida, it's different. My mood changes with the weather. So whenever upstate New York has to offer, I imagine I'll go hiking and see streams. I'll probably want to play more guitar. Fike hopes to release some music before season two of Euphoria ends February 27th. He says the new songs likely won't match sound like his previous work, including hits such as Three Nights, Phone Numbers, Vampire, and his cover of Paul McCartney's The Kiss of Venus. Fike has other acting projects lined up after Euphoria, but he says that leaves less time for making music. So is music still important to him? Yeah, it is, he says, but I wouldn't expect a tour anytime soon. Learn more at about Fike at DominicFike.com. There you go. And how about this? Connect with this reporter. Charles Runnels is an arts and entertainment reporter for the News, the news Press and the Naples Daily News. Email him online. Um, yeah, he's like our local pe- person who interviews uh, important people. So there you go. All right. Here's something next up. If you've ever seen the uh, Hulu series The Act, um, this is... Well, I'm just going to read it to you. Mom sentenced in daughter's death. Authorities say doctors fell for fabricated stories. 
This is an AP story from Denver. A Colorado mother who fatally abused her seven-year-old daughter and lied about her health to get handouts from charities worth at least $100,000 was sentenced to 16 years in prison as part of a plea deal that threw out murder charges. Judge Patricia Heron issued the sentence Wednesday after Kelly Turner pleaded guilty last month to child abuse resulting in the 2017 death of the girl, Olivia Gant, and to charitable fraud and theft. Previous charges of first-degree murder, attempt to influence a public servant, and forgery were dropped as part of an agreement with prosecutors. Turner said nothing during her virtual sentencing hearing, but wiped away tears as prosecutors played a video made by Olivia's grandfather, Lonnie Gatreau, of Olivia laughing and smiling, baking a cake, dancing in a princess costume, playing doctor with her dolls, and singing songs. The truth about Olivia has caused such a deep pain that it continues to ravage me every day, said a statement from Gateau. Gautreau, excuse me, that was read at the hearing by a prosecutor. Gautreau attended the, the hearing via video with a picture of his granddaughter at his side, his eyes tearing up during the proceedings. Authorities have said Turner lied to doctors about Olivia's medical history while broadcasting her struggles to receive money and other favors from organizations like the Make-A-Wish Foundation. The girl had received unnecessary surgeries and medications up until her death in a Denver hospice in 2017. That summer, Olivia cheerfully sang Hakuna Matata from The Lion King as she was wheeled into hospice care in Denver wearing purple pajamas. Quote, It means no worries for the rest of your days, she sang while her mother filmed. The girl died less than a month later. The video put out by Turner was many of the clips highlighting one of many clips highlighting the girl's battle with disease and death, which authorities said was used by her mother to dupe doctors and call for favors and donations to help ease her daughter's pain. Authorities have said Turner's spent years fabricating her daughter's illness, gaining sympathy from television news stories and charitable foundations. Make-A-Wish threw out a, quote, Bat Princess costume party for Olivia at a hotel that cost $11,000. The girl's cause of death was first listed as intestinal failure, but an aut autopsy later found no evidence of that condition. Authorities have not said what killed her, but according to the indictment, doctors went along with Turner's push to stop feeding her daughter. The amount of the theft from charity was between $100,000 and $1 million, according to prosecutors. Psychiatrists have said that Turner's behavior seems consistent with Munchausen's system... Mm -mm. Be specific here. Eight thousand words. I think I want to take it. There we go. Okay. Psychiatrists have said that Turner's behavior seems consistent with Munchausen syndrome. Munchausen syndrome by proxy a psychological disorder increasingly featured in movies and television in which parents or caregivers seek attention from the illness of their children or dependents and sometimes cause them injuries. But experts said these types of cases are not easy to detect. Turner moved to Colorado from Texas with her three daughters and told doctors over the years, beginning in 2012, that Olivia was sick with numerous ailments and diseases, convincing medical professionals to perform surgeries and fill prescriptions for illnesses that she didn't have. Several doctors said that Turner was the primary source of information for Olivia's medical history, according to the indictment. 
investigators discovered blogs, a GoFundMe site, and news stories in which Turner described Olivia's various health conditions without medical proof, including claims that she suffered from a seizure disorder, a tumor, and a buildup of fluid in cavities deep within her brain. At Olivia's first emergency room visit, a doctor thought she appeared to be growing normally, but the next year, a surgeon at the same hospital removed a part of her small intestine and inserted a feeding tube. Which is exactly what happened in the act. Um, God, I can't remember her name. Drive me crazy. The actions prompted a $25 million claim against the hospital system by Olivia's grandparents and father, arguing that the hospital failed to do their duties as mandatory reporters of child abuse. The case was resolved in August. A lawyer representing the grandparents said she could not comment further. While Turner's behavior raised suspicions along the way, it was only after Olivia died in hospice care in 2017 and Turner brought one of her other two daughters to the same hospital with a bone pain that doctors decided to take a closer that, that doctors decided to take a closer look. The girl 13 has not responded to any additional medical problems or complaints of pain since October 2018 and is in her grandparents' custody. Turner's eldest child is an adult. And there's an inset photo of her. Olivia Gant, who was six at the time, rides with Captain Tim Scudder on a call with the Denver Police Department in 2017. The girl received unnecessary surgeries and medications before her death. That's a cute little image of her dressed up like a little police officer with sunglasses driving around with a cop. They're in like a make-a-wish. But there you go. The act apparently did not um, deter anyone from trying to continue doing that. All right. Naked loon takes woman, 80, hostage. (laughs) A naked man crept into an 80-year-old Chicago woman's bed and held her hostage for 17 hours. But she was finally rescued after her daughter called the cops because the woman hadn't texted her the day's Wordle answers, WBBM-TV reported. Denise Holt was asleep on Saturday when the mentally ill man broke into her home in the Windy City's Lincolnwood neighborhood, the station reported. The intruder, identified as 32-year-old James H. Davis III, who was reportedly bloodied from a broken window, slipped into Holt's bed while clutching a pair of scissors, the station said. He then ordered her to take a bath with him in her nightgown. After the bath, he dragged her around the house, disconnected the phones, and took a couple of knives from the kitchen before taking her into a bathroom in the basement, which he blocked with a chair. Eventually, Holt's daughter, Meredith Holt Caldwell, who lives in Seattle, noticed that her mother, who had not texted her about the day's wordle, as she usually does. The family then called police, who responded to Holt's home about 9.40 p.m. Sunday. A SWAT team then used a stun gun to overpower the man after an hours-long standoff. So, on the record, Wordle has saved a life. Also in today's post, head trauma killed Saget. Bob Saget suffered multiple fractures to his skull before his tragic death in January, according to his autopsy report. 
The late Full House actor's skull had several fractures, along with abrasions to his scalp, according to the medical examiner's report obtained by Page Six on Thursday. The report also stated that Saget had bleeding and contusions to his brain and that his death was, quote, the result of blunt head trauma. Quote, it is most probable that the decedent suffered an unwitnessed fall backwards and struck the posterior aspect of his head, the report stated, adding, the manner of his death is accident. The medical examiner also noted that Saget's respiratory system was COVID positive, but did not clarify that finding. Saget's widow, Kelly Rizzo, explained last month that the late actor's recent battle with COVID-19, which he had received, or which he had revealed on a podcast a few days before his death, was, quote, not, any, not anything serious. On Thursday, page six confirmed that he died after an unspecified trauma to his head. Quote, they have concluded that her that he accidentally hit the back of his head on something and thought nothing of it and went to sleep. No drugs or alcohol were involved, Saget's family said in a statement. Saget was found dead at the age of 65 in his Orlando, Florida hotel room on January 9th. Authorities said at the time that there were no signs of foul play or drugs at the scene. Okay. Here's a little something to catch you up in case uh, it's from the post. I always do the the saucy things from the post because they write the saucy articles the best. They're ready to get saucy on people. Let's check something real quick while I continue. All right. Okay. Ooh, Adidas is in hot water over racy tweet. Definitely hadn't seen that four or five days ago. Okay. Weird tale of Wall Street cyber couple busted for laundering $3.6 billion in crypto. The Bonnie and Clyde of Bitcoin. All right. At the height of the pandemic in 2020, when she wasn't teaching herself Russian, creating Salvador Dali-inspired art, or recording rap songs about the excesses of Wall Street, Heather Morgan was very concerned about cybersecurity. Cybercriminals and fraudsters are taking advantage of this unexpected disruption, leading to a spike in scams and cybercrimes. Morgan, a, an, an, quote, entrepreneur, wrote in a June 2020 column for Forbes. She added that she was particularly concerned about elderly victims being vulnerable to online scams. Quote, people are not always as they appear online, she wrote. Oh, the irony. Morgan, 31, and her Russian-born husband, Ilya Dutch Lichtenstein, 34, now stand charged by the Justice Department with trying to launder an astounding $3.6 billion in cryptocurrency. And the self-described crocodile of Wall Street is the gold bomber jacket-wearing poster child for cybercrime. What's the crime? Morgan and Lichtenstein were arrested at their high-rise Wall Street apartment Tuesday for allegedly attempting to launder bitcoins that had been stolen from Hong Kong's Bitfinex, one of the world's largest virtual cryptocurrency exchanges in 2016. It's not—it's funny to think what a physical cryptocurrency exchange would look like. It's not clear if the couple was involved in the initial hacking that led to the bitcoin theft. The stolen cryptocurrency was allegedly transferred to, to a digital wallet controlled by Liechtenstein, who tra- uh, describes himself as a, quote, technology entrepreneur, coder, and investor, end quote, on his LinkedIn account. Morgan described herself vicariously as a, quote, serial entrepreneur, end quote, and a reverent comedic rapper 
end quote, who goes by the moniker Razzle Khan. Oh boy. By her own account, she is basically a mix of Hunter S. Thompson and Diane Arbus with a sprinkle of Tom Green. The Razzle Khan website boasts that Morgan is more fearless and more shameless than ever before, and she's taking on everyone from big software companies to healthcare to finance bros. She's also been rapping on Wall Street while wearing dark glasses and a leopard print scarf. The couple, who were released on a combined $8 million bond following their appearance in Manhattan Federal Court, allegedly used several different money laundering techniques, according to the complaint. They allegedly set up accounts with fictitious identities, moving stolen currency in a series, and quote, a series of small amounts, end quote, which totaled thousands of transactions in order to avoid detection. It sounds exactly like what the kid in uh, Ozark did. And, you know, you know, so far as we know, it doesn't get caught for it, but. I thought of the same thing that doing something like that would get caught like instantly. I, I don't think that you could get away with that. That if you've seen the fourth and final season of Ozark, I don't think that that is a thing that would get undetected for any amount of time. Um, at least not in that way. They allegedly spread funds in different virtual currency exchanges Sometimes drew suspicions for their accounts being frozen. Prosecutors said in a federal criminal complaint, Morgan and Lichtenstein spent the illegal proceeds on a $500 Walmart gift card, gold, and NFTs, among other things, according to the criminal complaint. Prosecutors allege the duo had a bag of cell phones labeled burner phones inside their apartment and that Lichtenstein kept a file called Passport underscore Ideas on his computer. Before their arrest, the savvy tech payer who lived in a Bengal lived with a Bengal cat named Clarissa, appeared to be rising moneyed stars. They lived in luxury buildings in San Francisco and New York. Rent in their Wall Street building begins at more than $5,000 for a studio, according to real estate listings. When Morgan wasn't rapping or trying her hand at designer clothing, um, at a designer clothing line based on Northern African influences, she contributed to columns... Wow. She contributed columns to Inc. and Forbes many of them based on her personal experience as a young entrepreneur. In one article, she wrote about how women were far better negotiators than men. Quote, In my early 20s and even late teens, I out-negotiated many experienced businessmen who were at least twice my age. She wrote, Accurate. Completely doable. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen someone whisk away 50 grand right out of someone's hands just by saying the right words. I recall one deal where my competitor was a loud and obnoxious bro who had overpowered a frat boy had an overpowering frat boy personality. However, he was actually very off-putting to the decision maker, who is more of an intellectual and an introvert. All right. What's her deal? Heather Rhiannon Morgan was born on May 28, 1990 in Ontario, Oregon, and grew up in Tehama, a city of just over 400 people in rural Northern California, where her parents' address is listed as a post office box, according to public records and Morgan's arrest warrant. Morgan grew up listening to rap and dreamed of being a rap star, but had a high-pitched voice and a serious speech impediment as a child. She spent her junior high school years listening to a, uh, going to a speech therapist. Quote, my entire life I've been self-conscious of my voice, she wrote in a Forbes column two years ago about how she decided to become a rapper to overcome some of her feelings of self-consciousness. I also got braces at age 12 and had to wear them until college, she continued. My teeth were so unusually screwed up that I'm probably a case study in several medical textbooks. 
<sighs> what's the what's the term for that? Self mythologization. Uh, delusional self mythology. Delusional self mythologization. Eager to leave her small town surroundings, Morgan took off for Japan alone at nineteen. She wrote. A year later, she moved to the Turkish capital Ankara, where she claimed she learned her most valuable negotiating skills by watching rug merchants and shop owners in the souks. No, she didn't. That did not happen at all. She attended Bilkent University in the city, where she simultaneously completed economic research on Turkish international monetary policy and trade, her LinkedIn profile claims. Morgan graduated with a bachelor's degree, from the University of California, Davis, with a degree in economics and international relations in 2011. She also attended the American University in Cairo, where she studied for a graduate degree. Part of my strategy always involves creating a sense of reciprocity, she wrote in another Forbes column, about why women often make better negotiators than men. In other words, if you give someone a really thoughtful present, they're way more likely to do business with you. My recommendation, if you're ever in this position, is to always write personalized thank you cards written out with a personalized note. And you need to write something extra sentimental so that it makes them in some way emotionally resonant. You want them to tear up or cry. It doesn't matter if it's it needs to sound true and it needs to get them emotional. It can be a lie, but it needs to sound correct. And then that's that's what you do. Just to give you the hot tip that's being pulled off. Um, by 20, or an example, by 23, Morgan discovered that she was so good at selling, she decided to become an entrepreneur, selling up her own, setting up her own companies to help clients create, quote, highly personalized email templates, utilizing game theory, data science, and testing copywriting best practices, according to her LinkedIn account. It's total horseshit. The company soon, it has to be, the company soon generated millions, mm-hmm, she claimed. Morgan likely met Liechtenstein in San Francisco in 2014 when he became a, quote, advisor to sales folk, the company Morgan started in 2009. Public records show them sharing an apartment in a luxury high-rise in the city in 2017. The following year was, quote, one of the best and worst years of my life, wrote Morgan in one of her Forbes columns. Within a few weeks, I had legal threats, learned that dishonest employees were fudging numbers and people I once deeply respected were trying to bully and shame me into removing the content I had published and I firmly believed that the public needed to see. Things grew worse when her parents were diagnosed with cancer a week apart. Things really sucked, she wrote, but a year later, in 2019, she was celebrating her engagement to her longtime boyfriend who goes by the nickname Dutch. What's his deal? Lichtenstein was born. All right. This, yeah, this is more comfortable. Lichtenstein was born in Rostov, a port city in Russia, in 1987, according to his arrest warrant. Although it's not clear when he moved to the U.S. with his family, his father, Yegnev Lichtenstein, originally Lichtenstein, spelled differently, works as a real estate agent in Chicago, according to public records. Lichtenstein grew up in Glenview, Illinois, and attended the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where he graduated with a BA in psychology in 2010, according to LinkedIn. After college, he left for San Francisco and confounded, <laughs> confounded, co-founded Mixed Rank, a quote customer delivery, no, a customer discovery platform. So it was like a sales lead generator thing. 
that help sales teams scope out new markets and con customers. It says costumers. The word says costumers, like people who make costumes. <laughs> That's why I misread that. After his sojourn in San Francisco, Lichtenstein and uh, Morgan moved to Manhattan, where they rented an apartment near the High Line before moving to Wall Street. Lichtenstein proposed to Morgan in June 2019. I got engaged to my best friend and the woman of my dreams, he has said, adding that he researched for months about how to go about doing it. He decided to fill New York City with billboards and posters promoting Morgan's rapper alter ego. I knew I had to do something memorable that would really show how much I love and value the real Heather. Not just the badass entrepreneur, but also the ultra-weird creative genius, he wrote. At the same time, knowing Heather, she would want any proposal to be pragmatic and also add business value. <laughs> I love adding business value to my proposal. Also, I love my proposal to be pragmatic. But even Lichtenstein seemed to have very little time for Morgan's increasingly bizarre antics. He strikes the opening chord on her latest rap video, Moon and Stars. I love you. I support you. Mm -mm. But I do not want to be involved. And in the middle of the song, he proclaims, Hey, Heather, I'm not amused. Yep, and that's it. Now we're uh, moving to page six. I'm just going to take this up real quick. Hardy's Har Har. Tom Hardy above. Beautiful picture of Tom Hardy looking hot as ever. Was so raving mad during an audition for 2015's Mad Max Fury Road that a rival thespian conceded that he should have the role. And you'll be happy when you find out who it is. In new book, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, the wild and true story of Mad Max Fury Road. Definitely going to buy that. It's revealed that Hardy auditioned with Army Hammer. When they read the script together, Hardy reportedly gnashed his teeth and spat at his rival. Hammer allegedly told the director that Hardy, quote, needed to be Max more than he did. Apparently you also need to eat flesh a little bit less than uh, Army Hammer, but, you know, Max character probably wouldn't uh, mince too many bones if he was hungry enough, right? And if that was too depressing for you, here tonight on Comedy central uh starting at 6 30 and uh, these are half hour blocks this is uh let's see 6 30 the office followed by the office followed by the office followed by friends followed by friends followed by friends followed by friends followed by the office followed by the office followed by the office followed by the office and that brings you all the way to midnight so that's a uh it's a good five and a half six hours of uh sitcoms to chill you out a little bit now i'm going to read something from the Book of Houses by Robert Cole and Paul Williams, an, astro an astrological guide to the harvest cycle in human life. <clears throat> houses versus sun signs. Public awareness of astrology focuses almost entirely on sun signs, the position of the sun and moon and other planets in the sky at the time of a person's birth. It's fun to find out a person's sign and consider him or her in relation to the other Scorpios or Leos or Pisces in your life. 
Careful study of sun signs and planetary aspects can yield endless insights into human nature and human events. Millions of people ask each other, what sign are you every day? But the other basic information system used by professional astrologers, the houses, has so far been almost a complete mystery to the non-professional. This is a shame, because just as knowledge of sun sun signs increases our self-awareness and understanding of others, so also knowledge of the houses could be a tremendous tool for people to use in their everyday lives. A simple system of great usefulness accessible to everyone. The houses tell us about the stages we go through in our lives. Sometimes we want to be alone. At other times, nothing is more important to us than sharing with other people. At one time of year, hard work is rewarded by rapid progress. At other times, the most effective approach is to relax and let events take their course. Each person has a different cycle. One will tell you January is the toughest month of the year to get through. Someone else will say August. By becoming aware of our own personal cycles, we gain understanding of inner forces that before may have seemed quite mysterious. Better still, by being conscious of the different stages we go through, we have the opportunity to work with our natural flow of our own energies rather than against them. What is particularly helpful is the realization that not only is each month of the year different, but there is an order to these changes, a natural progression. I call the progression the harvest cycle because because it is analogous to the growth of a plant. It begins each year with the choosing of seeds of what you will hope will grow in the year to come, and climaxes in a time of harvest, a time in which your wishes come true. They come true partly from the fertility of the soil and the warmth of the sun and the magic of the growing process. But a human being's chances for a rich harvest can always be improved by conscious attention to the stages of the growing process and knowing what to do do when. This is the greatest gift the houses can give us. They allow us to work more consciously to achieve our dreams, in addition to putting us in touch with the natural forces. One second. I think there's someone at the door. Okay, there was someone at the door. It's fine now. Some wonderful packages to help the podcast. Books and such. Um, Hmm. Let's begin again here. What is particularly helpful is the, is the realization that not only is each month of the year different, but there is an order to these changes, a natural progression. I call this progression the harvest cycle because it is analogous to the growth of a plant. It begins each year with the choosing the seeds of what you will hope will grow in the year to come and climaxes in a time of harvest, a time when your wishes come true. They come true partly from the fertility of the soil and the warmth of the sun and the magic of the growing process. But a human being's chances for a rich harvest can always be improved by conscious attention to the stages of the growing process and knowing what to do when. This is the greatest gift the houses can give us. They allow us to work more consciously to achieve our dreams. In addition to putting us in touch with the natural forces that can make our dreams come true, the houses can help us understand the great mystery of relationships, the changing nature of the way we feel and behave towards each other. I am a different person than I am a different person at different times of the year, and so are you, and we are probably not going through the same stages at the same time. I believe that by understanding these changes we both go through, we will have more patience with each other and we will be better able to build lasting friendships. 
Finally, the houses help us to understand ourselves and the very different attitudes towards ourselves and the world that we experience during the year. Attitudes that sometimes seem to have no connection with the external conditions. Excuse me. I find that the insights gained from knowledge of one's houses make it much easier to accept and work with this annual cycle of self-doubt and self-belief. Sun signs tell us who we are, but they can't tell us how much we change and grow. The houses and the harvest cycle are marvelous tools for self-awareness. It is my hope that these tools can be made available to everyone. With that thought, let us take a look at the houses themselves. I'm just going to read a little bit more. The harvest cycle. The houses in this book are periods of time, ranging from 15 to 45 days. Each of us passes through the same 12 houses, or 12 stages of growth, every year. The purpose of this book is to provide a basic description of what each of these stages is like, and to let you know when each stage begins and ends for you. The houses are arranged in a sequence that begins with the house of choosing seeds and ends with with the house of harvest. Each house is a stage in the personal growth cycle that climaxes each year on your harvest day. Awareness of the harvest cycle has been a primary survival tool of human beings since we first began to grow our own food. By looking at the stars, ancient farmers determined the best times for plowing, planting, irrigation, and harvesting. The position of the stars was recognized as a reference tool, telling us what time it is here on Earth. In addition to the agricultural harvest cycle, based on the seasons, there is a harvest cycle for people that governs our lives, our moods, and our growth as individuals. This cycle is based on the progress of the sun every year through the 12 houses of an individual's astrological chart. Think of the stars as a map. It is not that they influence our lives themselves, but rather, as sailors have always known, that by looking at the stars, we can find out where we are and what time it is right now. If you have looked at an astrological chart, you know that it's a circle divided into 12 sections, 12 pieces of pie. There are the 12 houses. These are the 12 houses. The first house starts on the far left at the 9 o'clock position. The second house is the section just below it, and so forth, moving counterclockwise around the circle. On a particular day each year, the sun passes over the line on your chart that marks the beginning of your first house. This is your resurrection day, the day each year that your seedling self breaks through the soil and first feels the warmth of the sun. Nine months later comes your harvest day, when your seedling is full grown and bears the fruit you work for all year. In a moment, I will show you, (laughs) excuse me, in a moment, I will show you how to find the exact days each year when your personal resurrection and harvest days occur. Using this book as a tool, you can familiarize yourself with your own annual cycle of growth. This cycle begins with the 11th house, the time of choosing seeds. This is the month each year in which when we decide, consciously or unconsciously, what it is we want to achieve in the year ahead. During the 12th house, we plant the seeds, our dreams, and let them germinate. The first house is the time when the seedling reaches the surface and becomes visible to the world. The second house is for putting down roots into the soil. During the third house, leaves appear and the plant begins to explore its environment. In the fourth house, pruning and weeding takes place. The fifth house is a time of branching out. The plant takes on its form. Buds appear and flowers bloom during the sixth house. Pollination occurs in the seventh, the house of partnership. The fruit is formed in the eighth house and ripens during the ninth. 
Finally, the tenth house is the time of harvest, followed by storage and processing. And then it's time once again to choose seeds for another year's full cycle. The analogy of the growth of a seedling is most useful to an understanding of the human life. It may be that we are not as distant from the world of plants as we imagine. My purpose here is to present you the details of the cycle as clearly as possible, and to make you familiar with the exact day each year that each house or stage begins for you. What house are you in right now? If you're in your sixth house, this is the time of year that you should be paying most attention to your health, because how you act now will determine the state of your health for the time to come. If you're in your 12th house, it might be a good idea to get a notebook and write down the things you find yourself worrying about. It makes a difference what house you're in, and certainly this book will be more fun if you know about, if you know as you read about a house, what day that house begins for you each year. Here's how to find out. For accurate information, you need an accurate astrological chart, a mathematical picture of the positions of the stars and planets at the time of your birth. You, if you have a, if you do, if you have a chart, go get it now. If you do not have one, you can gain an accurate chart by sending your exact time of <laughs> exact time and place of birth with $5 to Astronumeric Services, P.O. Box 1020, Department C, El Cerrito, California, 94530. Did I mention that this book was published in 1980? If you want to estimate the approximate time of year each house begins for you as a stopgap until you can get a chart, turn to page 116. I'm sure you can do this all online. Now take your chart and look carefully at the 12 lines that divide the circle into houses. At each, at the end of each of those lines, around the outermost edge of your chart, is a symbol of one of the signs of the zodiac. Each symbol is accompanied by a number, from 1 to 30. Typically, this notation is outside the circle, near the end of a line, and is written, for example, 18 degrees or sometimes 18 Pisces. You may find a notation that has two numbers. For example, 18 Pisces 42. An explanation of this will be found in instruction, <laughs> instruction number three on page 110. What we want to do is change these symbols and degree numbers into specific dates. To do this, we use the translation key that starts on page 110. Look through the translation key until you can, I think you get the idea of what I'm going on about. Read the book if you'd like to know more. The metaphor holds itself. All you have to do now is go around the 12 points at the outside of your chart and use the translation key to change each symbol or number to the combination of the specific month or day. For your convenience, we have included a blank chart. As you read this book, you will find blank spaces to fill in at the start of each chapter. Just refer back to your chart on page 109 when you want to fill in these spaces. And it has a nice little workbook. The metaphors in the book are um, inspiring and weird. Um, and inspiring. And I find this book deeply fascinating as an artifact of 1980s New Age belief. And uh, this is the fifth printing from July 1999. Weird, wild, and fascinating book. I love the, the beginning and the end of it, especially. Okay. This is in uh, today's Wall Street Journal. Friday, February 11th. Two chip producers knocked offline by Yang Ji. Tokyo. Two factories making flash memory chips have been hit by production. Mm. They've been hit by production stoppages since late January over a contamination issue, a problem likely to affect the already troubled semiconductor supply chain. 
The factories are operated by Japan's Kyosha Holdings Corp., a, in partnership with the San Jose, California-based Western Digital Corp. The NAND flash memory chips they make go into many products, including smartphones, computers, and servers. Basically everything that has a solid-state storage. Um, the two companies said Thursday, Japan time, that some materials used in making the chips suffered from an unidentified contamination at factories in the Japanese cities of Yokaichi and Kitakami. The problem affects an advanced kind of chip known as three-dimensional flash memory, Kyosha said. It also said it hoped to bring operations back to normal as soon as possible, but it wouldn't give a specific target. Western Digital said the problem was likely to cause a shortage of at least 6.5 exabytes in flash storage, equivalent to about 100 million of these 64 gigabyte flash memory cards that are often used for digital camera storage. Taiwan-based research firm Trendforce said the shortfall represented 13% of the company's expected output in the first quarter of this year. Neither company provided a detailed explanation of the problem or its cause. They didn't say whether there were any kind of problems with the products already shipped. Western Digital and Kosha combined held a 32.5% share of the market for NAND flash memory chips and uh, in the third quarter of last year, according to Trendforce. Memory chips haven't recently faced the kind of shortages affecting other types other types of chips, such as those that manage power supply. Trendforce had forecast that NAND flash memory chip prices would fall in the first quarter of this year, but it said the problems in Japan might now push up prices 5 to 10% in the second quarter. A lot of 5 to 10% price jumps, as we'll read next. Two of the world's largest memory chip makers, Samsung Electric Electronics Co. and Micron Technology ran into problems in China in late December when the local government of the region where they operate imposed movement restrictions to counter COVID-19. The restrictions were lifted in late January. Western Digital and Kyosha were in talks last year to merge, but the talks stalled, the Wall Street Journal reported. And here's a little um, additional, additional tale here. Coke and Pepsi sales rise on increase in prices. Jennifer Maloney, Coca-Cola, and PepsiCo reported higher quarterly sales as the global soda giants pushed through price increases, but also felt the squeeze of higher costs for commodities and transportation. Coke's organic revenue increased 9% in the quarter ended December 31st, key, driven by an increase in prices, a 10% increase in prices. So you get a 9% boost in total sales revenue off a 10% increase in price, which means you have a 1% drop in gross sales, I think. I'm no expert. I'm no economist. But once again, I know an economist could potentially listen to this show and is encouraged to chime in if they choose to. Organic revenue at PepsiCo, which also sells Doritos, Lay's potato chips, and other packaged foods, rose 12% with a 7% increase in prices. Organic revenue strips out currency swings as well as acquisitions or divestitures. Both companies said inflation played a part, I'm assuming. Yep. Played, uh... That doesn't make any sense. Oh. Both companies said inflationary pressures hurt their profits as costs rose for trucking, agricultural commodities, and packaging. Coke's operating income fell 28% in the quarter. PepsiCo's operating profit fell 9%. Still, the results were better than Wall Street 
forecasts. Koch said the fourth quarter of 2021 was the first period since the pandemic start that the, in, that the volume of its sales in restaurants and other eating venues was ahead of 2019. The Coke, the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 shut restaurants, bars, sports stadiums, and movie theaters around the world. Coke chief executive James Quincy said he expects supply chain disruptions to improve in 2022, along with the effects of the pandemic, but he cautioned, quote, it's not going back to 2019 fully in 2022. Hugh Johnson, PepsiCo's chief financial officer, said he is preparing for the possibility that cut um, that cost pressures could continue into 2023. Chief Executive Ramon LaGuerta added that recent price increases haven't turned away consumers. Quote, we have customers following us in spite of higher prices, he said. Cool. Coke and PepsiCo, two of the, yes, I drink a Coke. Coke and PepsiCo, two of the world's biggest advertisers, said they ramped up marketing spending during the most recent quarter. Coke, an Olympic sponsor, has been running an Olympics-themed marketing campaign in China, though not in the United States or other markets. PepsiCo boosted marketing in the quarter around the National Football League ahead of the Super Bowl, whose halftime show they sponsor. Both companies have been revamping their product portfolios to adapt to changing consumer tastes. Coke in November struck a $5.6 billion deal to take full control of Body Armor, a sports drink that has been growing uh, sales faster than Coke's soda business. Notable that Coke also owns Gatorade. And PepsiCo, I believe, owns Powerade. PepsiCo recently closed on the sale of its Tropicana juice business, which had been posting sales lower or slower than other units. I wonder who they sold it to. Like other consumer goods companies and manufacturers, the two soda rivals have faced higher prices for inputs, including the sugar in their drinks, the aluminum that they use for their cans, and the cost of shipping in their products shipping their products around the world. U.S. inflation accelerated to 7.5% annual rate in January, rising to a four-decade high, the Labor Department said Thursday. Mr. Quincy said the pandemic exacerbated underlying supply chain problems such as unavailability of truckers and inadequate supply of aluminum. Quote, everyone, including ourselves, are very involved in fixing them, he said. For 2022, Coke said it expects organic revenue growth out of it expects organic revenue growth of seven to eight percent. It forecasts adjusted. It forecasts adjusted earnings per share growth of five to six percent from 2021, excluding currency swings. Beyond its namesake soda, the company owns Smart Water, Minute Maid Juices, Gold Peak Tea, and Costa Coffee. Mr. LaGuerta said that in recent months, PepsiCo has seen some improvements in its supply chain throughout North America. The company forecasts 6% organic revenue for 2022 growth and an 8% increase in core earnings per share, excluding currency swings. Keep all these percentages in mind with inflation. Compare inflation to all these percentages. This is key in my mind to understanding what is driving these things and, and their, the size of the swings. Uh, Mr. LaGuerta said, PepsiCo isn't currently exploring new, isn't currently exploring any new acquisitions in that the company, which also owns Gatorade, Mountain Dew, Cheetos, Quaker Oats, and Quaker Oats. It's uh, a misprint. It's like all garbled up. Sufficient brands to fuel its current strategy. Shares of the two rivals have surged in the past year and are trading all-time highs. Coca-Cola shares edged up less than 1%, while PepsiCo fell 2.1% on Thursday. 
All right. NBC is trying to shift off all the content off of Hulu so they can throw it on Peacock. Um, there's a heads up on that. Unilever is thinking about selling off all their um, novelty items like ice cream. They want to sell off basically all their snacks and foods. Uh, Zillow. I'm going to read this one just because it's so wild. This is by Will Parker. Zillow Group said on Thursday that it lost $881 million in its algorithmic-driven home-flipping business last year on, first, on its first earnings report since the real estate company shut down that operation in the fall. The full company, which includes Zillow's profitable home listing and advertising business, posted a consolidated net loss of $528 million in 2021. Mostly because of its home-flipping business, Zillow offers. Dope Zillow offers. The home flipping outfit had been responsible for the majority of Zillow's revenue in recent years, but none of its profits. The company shocked the market in November by announcing that it was closing Zillow offers because the algorithm-powered platform failed to accurately predict movements in home prices. Zillow also cut about 2,000 jobs, or one quarter of its staff, and wrote down losses of more than half a billion dollars on the value of the remaining homes connected with Zillow offers. For the fourth quarter, Zillow reported a net loss of $261 million, or $1.03 a share. Analysts expected Zillow to report a loss of $0.90 a share, according to FactSet. Class A shares of Zillow had fallen about 1.3% on Thursday as the market closed, but began rising during after-hours trading. Zillow said in a Thursday letter to shareholders that it is targeting a revenue of $5 billion by 2025. The company said it generated about $8.1 billion in revenue last year though Zillow Offers was responsible for about $6 billion of it. Okay, so they're basically trying to replace Zillow Offers income. Or revenue, I suppose. In an interview, Chief Executive Rich Barton said the company was expanding the reach of its finance. I wonder if they just did this entire thing to expand their revenue, like double. There's a lot of benefits for that. Mm, customers who take a tour with us are three times as likely to buy a home with us, Mr. Barton said. Um, Zillow had said that it sold or had agreements to sell more than 85% of its remaining inventory of homes. During the fourth quarter, Zillow lost an average of about 25000 on every home. It sold before interest expense, the company said. According to Yipet Data, Zillow still has about 8,600 homes on its books. To lose another twenty-five grand on a piece, it previously sold some of its homes to large investors like rental landlord Predium Partners, which agreed to buy two thousand of them in November. So Zillow bought a bunch of homes and sold two thousand of them to uh, a rental service. Note to self: Google Predium Homes and see what their deal is. Here's a little something about some sales. Successful sales. Sting sells songwriting catalog to Universal Music by Anne Steele. Sting sold his entire music catalog to Universal Music Publishing Group, the company said, in one of the largest publishing transactions for an individual artist's work. The deal for the 17-time Grammy Award winner solo works, as well as his hits with the Rock band The Police fetched a price of around $300 million, according to people familiar with the transaction. 
Sting's deal is in league with other major catalog and music rights sales from the past couple of years. Universal, a division of Universal Music Group NV, bought Bob Dylan's SOG catalog at the end of 2020 for $300 million, uh, $300 to $400 million, according to people familiar with the deal, and encompassed more than 600 copyrights spanning 60 years. Bruce Springsteen sold his music rights, both his song catalog and his recorded music, to Sony Group Corpse, Sony Music Group, for between $500 million and $600 million, and the largest transaction for the life's work of an individual artist, according to people familiar with the matter. So the boss is still the boss. The deal highlights how hot the market is for music rights as a steady stream of artists has sold their catalogs in recent years. A combination of a listener's preference for older music, tax advantages for artists on their catalog sales, and high valuations driven by the idea that music is a recession-proof and high-growth asset have driven the frenzy, music industry executives and lawyers say. But if music industry is now the tech industry, and the tech industry is about to have a... Oops. Well, we'll see. I mean, there's no way you can lose on buying money for... Or, <laughs> there's no way you can lose on investing if you can invest in the catalog of music that people are going to potentially listen to forever. I mean, now the value of that depends on the state of our economy remaining a glorious little state in which we just sit and pluck up entertainment from the, the petals of the garden. But I digress. Having both Sting's recording and publishing rights will allow the world's largest music company to place his work in a variety of media, including biopics and other films, television shows, and commercials. Revenue from streaming music has grown with the popularity of services from Spotify Technologies SA, Apple Inc., and Amazon Inc. The income from music streaming has been especially pronounced for classic tunes like those found in Sting's catalog, um, with hits finding new listeners decades after their initial release. Music older than 18 months makes up some of... Uh, mm. Wow, this is actually surprisingly less than I thought. Music older than 18 months makes up some 70% of listeners' consumption on music streaming services. According to MRC Data, formerly Nielsen Music. Older hits are commanding higher prices than before the pandemic because they are generally perceived as safe bets based on proven longevity and they have seen an even bigger surge in streaming during lockdowns as fans have leaned into familiar nostalgia listening. True enough. Sting said the deal would help his body of work not only to connect with longtime fans in new ways, but also to introduce my songs to new audiences, musicians, and generations. The British-born songwriter, singer-songwriter, whose legal name is Gordon Matthew Thomas Sumner, has sold more than 100 million albums over his career as the tantric frontman and bassist of The Police and as a solo artist. The new wave, let's see if you can figure out the word I inserted in there. The new wave rock band inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2003 released five studio albums between 1978 and 1983. Altogether, Sting has released 15 studio albums and was introduced into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2002. He got his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2000. Sting's older song, <laughs> Sting's older work has also re-entered pop culture with samples by high-profile artists such as Diddy, in I'll Be Missing You and Juice World in Lucid Dreams, as well as in Nas, The Roots, and Tupac, Sh Tupac Shakur and French Montana. 
A prolific performer, Sting is slated to resume his world tour next month, followed by Las Vegas residency at Caesars Palace in June. Yeah, see, that's the right time. You sell it all up front, then you can get all the cash in from all the people listening to your music as they go to your shows and your popularity builds. I mean, it's a good, you know. Hell, man, you want to do it? Fucking do it. You're Sting. Get real tantric with your music investment options and schemes. Super Bowl ad promotes Meta's VR headsets as the company pivots focus to an immersive digital world. A still from the ad. That was the inset description of the graphic. Animatronic dog stars in Meta Platforms ad by Megan Graham. Meta Platforms Inc. Super Bowl ad will try to sell the promise of the metaverse and the company's virtual reality headsets with the help of an out-of-work animatronic singing dog. The commercial that the Facebook parent plans to run during the game features the company's Quest 2 headset, which I guess used to be called an Oculus Quest 2 and is now just called a Quest 2, which sells for at least $2.99. Sales of VR headsets have risen as more people are getting curious about the metaverse. Don't. A concept rooted in science fiction novels that refers to an extensive online world. Um, yeah, I get that's. I mean, it, I would say the concept of the metaverse existed before the online world. Did it not? Did it not exist in comics before that? The ad depicts an animatronic band with a steady gig at Chuck E. Cheese style arcade restaurant called Questies. Mm, trying to touch on the Five Nights at Freddy's, aren't they? The band is separated when the spot closes. The lead singer, a dog, is shown at a pawn shop as a, display, as a display at a golf course, forgotten on the side of a highway, and finally at a space center where someone places quest, a quest unit on its head. The dog visits Horizon Worlds. So we're, we're useless, old, disgusting garbage, and we're going to strap these quests on. We're, we're rolling around an old abandoned junkyard. Uh, um, we don't know what to do with ourselves or how to eat or drink or do anything anymore. We're going to strap on the quest and hello, we're in the metaverse. The dog visits Horizon Worlds, the meta's virtual reality platform, and reunites virtually with its bandmates at a digital rendition of Questies. The ad, which Meta released Thursday, is part of a broader campaign showing the company's technologies as conducive to immersive social experiences. The campaign comes during a rocky start of the company's pivot towards the metaverse. Shares in Meta plunged last week after it reported a sharper-than-expected decline in profit and a dismal outlook in its first earnings report since Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg outlined the shift and dropped the Facebook Inc. name. Although our direction is clear, it seems that our path ahead is not quite perfectly defined, Mr. Zuckerberg told investors during a conference call last week. He added that the company is hard-focused, it is focused on hardware and software needed to build an immersive embodied internet that enables better digital social experiences than anything that exists today. The company is hoping to release a, quote, high-end virtual reality headset later this year, and it is also working on augmented reality glasses, he said. So is Apple and every other company in the world. Ooh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. How about this? Super Bowl expected to be biggest betting event in football history by Joseph Diavia. This year's Super Bowl is set to become the biggest legal gambling event in football history. A record 31.4 million Americans plan to bet on Super Bowl uh, 56, a 35% increase from last year's game, according to the American Gaming Association. Betters 
in my brain, I am now internalizing the fact that better is not spelled with an E at the end, are estimated to wager $7.61 billion on this year's game. Wow. A 78% jump from last year. So clearly, sports betting and all those Caesars ads and all those companies. Uh, even uh, here in Florida, we have legal sports betting now circumventing um, any kind of legal authorization um, thanks to the Hard Rock uh, Casino. A diehard Cincinnati Bengals fan, Dennis Walker, 71 years old, said he was visiting Las Vegas last February when he decided to bet $20 on his team to win it all in the Super Bowl. Mr. Walker, who is from Cincinnati, said his bet is poised to pay out 35-20 if the Bengals win. And let me tell you something, he said, they are bringing back the Lombardi, Lombardi Trophy. The Los Angeles Rams are favored to win the game. The record-setting number of Super Bowl wagers has been driven by the surge in availability in sports betting that began in 2018 after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states beyond Nevada can legalize gambling on sports, on sports gambling analysts said. Now 33 states and the District of Columbia have legalized sports betting. Three of those states haven't allowed betting to begin yet. Revenue for the sports betting industry has grown rapidly and reached at least $4.29 billion in 2021, up from $1.55 billion in the year prior, according to the association. In 2017, the industry produced only $266.5 million in revenue. Mobile bets, were, uh, mobile bets made were up about 86%. Excuse me. Mobile bets made up about 86% of legal sports wagers, according to the association. So everyone's betting on... Oh, whoa. All right. Let's move that microphone and not slap into it again. Everyone's making the investments on their phones. The investments in their fortunate future. Quote, More people have legal ways to bet on sports than ever before, said Bernie McTernan, a senior analyst with Needham & Co., who tracks the online sports betting industry. I'll have to look into them. New York State made its debut in sports gambling industry in January and quickly became the top market in the U.S. About $1.63 billion in bets were placed over cell phones in January in New York, according to the association. In New Jersey, the second biggest market, there were $1.11 billion in mobile wagers in December. January's figures are expected to be released next week. That is so much money. In New, so in New Jersey alone, the second biggest market, $1.11 billion were made in mobile wagers just in December. Sports betting operators have sought to acquire rival companies to scale up their businesses in increasingly competitive industries. In an, in an increasingly competitive industry. The companies are spending billions of dollars to promote their brands to find an edge. A lot of the growth consumer interest is driven in the billions of marketing spending that is being pushed out by operators like DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, and Caesars. Yep, those are the most visible ones for sure if you've watched any sporting event in the last few years, especially in the last six to nine months, said Chris Grove, a gambling industry analyst at research firm Eilers and Krajic Gaming. Mike Raffensperger, Mike Raffensperger, chief marketing officer at FanDuel Group, said the company has seen 70% more bets placed this year on the Super Bowl compared with with a similar point last year. Quote, that's a mix of states, that's a mix of more states online, more people on our platform, Mr. Raffensperger said. And, as you would imagine, there is a giant hockey stick graph leading up to kickoff on Sunday 
where the absolute number will just get exponentially bigger. Perfect example of the hockey stick uh, example of a graph. Uh, Matthew Kalish, DraftKings Inc. co-founder and president of the North American operations of the organization, declined to say how the Super Bowl is sticking up to last year for his company, but he noted eh, it's doing fine. But he noted that since the last Super Bowl, the company has launched in Connecticut, Louisiana, Oregon, New York, Wyoming, and Arizona, as those states opened their sports gambling markets. Quote, getting those states live has really been a growth factor, Mr. Kalish said. Yeah, of course. Every single one of them would be. Adam Greenblatt, yeah, Adam Greenblatt, chief executive of BetMGM, a partnership between MGM Resorts International and British gambling company Entain PLC, said the company is on track to handle twice as many Super Bowl bets as it did last year. Here's a little Australian news for you. Startup raises funds to find battery minerals by Rhiannon Hoyle. I can hear the song in my head. Adelaide, Australia. Cobalt Metals, a startup backed by Bill Gates's Bill Gates's Breakthrough Energy Ventures that aims to use artificial intelligence to find metals needed for the electric vehicle boom, raised $192.5 million for its latest financing round, according to two, two people familiar with the matter. Investors in the Series B funding round for Berkeley, California company included Sam Altman's Portfolio, Apollo Projects, and Mary Meeker's Bond Capital, as well as mining giant BHP Group Limited and the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, Canada's largest pension fund, one of the people said. Angel investors included Scott Belsky, a startup investor and chief product officer at Adobe Inc. and Lyft Inc., President John Zimmer, while existing backers, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Anderson Horowitz, and Equinor Ventures, the startup investing arm of Norwegian energy giant Equinor ASA, also joined the round. Cobalt, founded in 2018, says it can change the way minerals are discovered by mining data for clues about where deposits of cobalt, copper, nickel, or lithium might be found in the Earth's crust. Cobalt says it uses AI to guide where to procure land and what data to collect and where to drill. It has collected publicly available data from company disclosures and government sources, as well as historical information from companies it partners with. Its algorithms then crunch what data it has in search of patterns. Global mining companies say exploring for metals is getting tougher, tougher as demand is accelerating for materials used in the transition away from fossil fuels. As a result, they expect to look for new deposits much deeper beneath the surface or in countries that pose greater risks to their business, including through, uh, through resources nationalism. I've never read that term before. Resource nationalism, but resources nationalism is, is a new word for me. Uh, investors worry the world is on track for large shortages of battery materials that could hinder the shift towards a low-carbon economy. Oh, they'll get those materials. Uh, there might be some rust to grind off um, in, in the gears, but uh, they'll get those materials. The cost is the only question. Cobalt aims to change the mindset of an industry that has long relied on heavy, heavily 
on sampling soil and sediment and drilling holes into the ground to determine whether areas contain valuable minerals. While the company still leans on those techniques, it hopes to limit the chances of failure by drawing on machine learning and other scientific computing techniques. In September, Cobalt formed an exploration alliance with BHP, the world's largest mining company by market value. It is one of a number of partnerships it has with resources companies worldwide. Quote, globally, shallow ore deposits have largely been discovered and remaining resources are likely deeper underground and harder to see from the surface, BHP's head of metals exploration, Keenan Jennings, said at the time. Mining companies will need to adopt new ways of working to unearth the next generation of essential minerals, he said. Some other mining companies, including Anglo-American PLC and technology-focused companies, are also looking at how artificial intelligence might allow minerals to be found more easily, but those efforts haven't led to a as those efforts haven't led to many big discoveries of critical commodities. Connie Chan a general partner at Anderson Horowitz said Cobalt is aiming to build a Google Maps for the Earth's crust. Interesting. It's very much just a different approach to mining, a long-term science-driven way to mine, Ms. Chan said in an interview in September. It's kind of what I was visualizing in my head at the beginning. If that existed, that would be very useful, and that's what they're trying to make. Uh, still, some mining executives remain skeptical of the benefits of artificial intelligence in an industry where commodity price cycles have long balanced supply and demand by attracting new investments when prices are high and deterring it when they are low. Interesting. People are mad that the price couldn't remain a constant or the supply gets so high that the price really isn't such a much of a factor anymore. <laughs> I love this. Revealing final paragraphs. Mining companies have also already adopted AI to smooth other operations, such as the scheduling of trains. The funds from Cobol's new investor syndicate will be used to accelerate efforts to find critical battery materials, one of the people said, is currently working on the exploration projects in the United States, Canada, Australia, Greenland, and Zambia. Cobol hasn't disclosed how much it raised in its Series A financing round or in its valuation. The World Economic Forum in June included Cobalt among a class of 100 companies deemed pioneers in technology, the same honor it once bestowed on a young Google Inc. On the subject of things out of the ground, by Michael Wright, London. Billion-year-old black diamond sells for $4.3 million. The world's largest cut diamond, believed to be at least... One billion years old has sold for $4.3 million to an unidentified buyer who opted to pay with cryptocurrency, London-based auction house Sotheby's said. The black diamond, called the Enigma, weighs 555.55 carats and was listed as the world's largest cut diamond in the 2006 Guinness World Records and the largest fancy black natural-colored diamond as of 2004, according to the Gemological Institute of America. One carat is equivalent to one-fifth of a gram. Sotheby's said the diamond, so it weighs exactly 100 grams. No, it weighs exactly 111.11 grams, I guess. Right? Who cares? Uh, it's a big-ass fucking diamond, and there's a picture of it, someone holding it in the middle of their two hands, and I'm only reading about it for the reasons that will become clear after. Most diamonds are uncovered deep within the earth in kimberlite rock. But the Enigma is a rare carbonado, a type of stone that is found close to the surface, 
and thought potentially to have originated as a result of impact of meteors or asteroids, so to be said. Carbonados also contain osbornite, osbornite, a mineral found in meteors. They are found exclusively in Brazil and the Central African Republic, which hundreds of millions of years ago were joined as part of a supercontinent known as Rodinia. The structure of carbonados make them particularly difficult to cut. The Enigma would have weighed more than 800 carats in its rough form, and cutting it into its current form with 55 facets took over three years. The largest diamond ever discovered was the 3,106-carat Kuyinan Cullinan. Kuyinan, I'm going to say Kuyinan. Kuyinan stone found in South Africa. There is the Cullinan stone. In 1905, the stone was cut into several large polished gems, including the Great Star of Africa and the Lesser Star of Africa, both of which are housed in British. Hmm. Both of which are housed in Britain's crown jewels. Global demand for diamond has rebounded after taking a big hit during coronavirus pandemic lockdowns, which supply struggling um, to keep pace and driving prices 25% higher last year, according to Paul Zeminski, the founder of the research firm Diamond Analytics. <laughs> what better way to name your analytics company about diamonds? Payment in cryptocurrency and auctions has picked up since Sotheby's sold a 100-carat diamond to a crypto buyer last July for $12.3 million, the highest price for a gemstone purchased with a digital currency. The British auction house has said that allowing payment in cryptocurrencies has opened the market to a new generation of buyers. A new generation of the same generation with uh, washed cash in a different format. Doesn't matter. Evergrande CEO sold bonds before profit warning. Now tell me if this sounds familiar. It's by Rebecca Feng. China Evergrande Group's chief executive sold his holdings of company dollar bonds with a face value of $128 million last summer. Chief or stock executive exchange filings showed. With the sales coming a few weeks before the company developer, the property developer is sued. I'm going to reread this entire paragraph. China Evergrande Group's chief executive sold his holdings of company dollar bonds with a face value of $128 million last year, stock exchange filings showed, with the sales coming a few weeks before the property developer issued a profit warning. Evergrande CEO Xia Haishun and Hui Ka Yan, the founder and chairman, have in recent years bought large quantities of new bonds from the company, according to a company statement earlier filings disclosing changes to their holdings. Some of the bond buying was presented as a public show of support when the real estate giant was conducting a multi-billion dollar debt issue. Mr. Jia sold all of his holdings in $3 notes issued by Evergrande or its Scenery Journey Limited unit in transactions between July 27th and August 17th, according to the Wednesday filings. The notes were sold at between 36 cents and 52 cents at the dollar. The filing showed Evergrande's bonds have since fallen further in price. One of the bonds that Mr. Jia had invested in is due in 2022, which was due in 2022, is recently quoted at 10 cents on the dollar. 
It couldn't be determined why the disclosure was made several months after the sales. <laughs> the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission generally re requires directors of public companies to file notices about, quote, relevant events, including a purchase or sale of their company's bonds within three business days. Evergrande didn't respond to requests for comment. Investor confidence in Evergrande was already waning by July 2021, but its problems intensified in late August. Company executives were summoned to a meeting with Chinese financial regulators on August 19th, and Evergrande issued a profit warning on August 15th. 25th, excuse me, six days later. The company has since defaulted on its international debts and is working with government representatives and advisors on a restructuring. Mr. Zha's holdings were bonds. Issued in 2017 and 2020, the filing showed his dealings in Evergrande's debt were comparatively modest, sent against those of Mr. Hui, who was once ranked as China's richest man and who retains a majority stake in the company. In contrast, the CEO holds about 0.26% of Evergrande's shares, and his compensation for 2020 was about 205 million yuan, or the equivalent of $32 million. Chairman Hui bought $1 billion of Evergrande bonds in a late 2018 deal and $650 million of debt issued in January 2020. The purchase by both executives in 2020 reflected their, quote, support and confidence in Evergrande, the property developer said at the time. Mr. Hui sell, sold the bonds he bought in 2018 early the following year. He hasn't disclosed any sale of notes purchased in January 2020. In November, he sold some of his Evergrande shares, raising the equivalent of $343 million. The following month, disclosures show that his stake fell further due to sales in which, quote, shares were sold by the security holder who enforced the security. After those transactions, Mr. Hui's stake totaled about 59.8%. Filings showed. Oh, it's time to take a little cash on the way out the door. Hmm. Okay. That's it. That's it on that. Okay. Let's take a look here. It's 2.24 p.m. Let's keep firing away. I'm going to open up this uh, book here. I'm going to read a little bit by, uh, read a little bit by Paul Williams. A little, a little interlude, a little artistic interlude. Maybe we'll have a little music after this. I love this idea. We're going on um, an hour and 57 minutes you've been sitting here with me. And we're going to keep going. We're just going to keep going until we run out of time. Why not? A little poetry before a fortnight, as they say. We give birth to the world without end. The more we're together, the better we are at making love to each other. But still, what excites me most is the stranger in you. The unknown is the root of fear. It is also the home of desire. I believe we will never fully know each other, and so we can love forever. Desire is a part of coming. Love can exist on a purer plane. But lovemaking needs desire. I want you. These are the holy words of sex. It is lust for the world that creates the world. Every time. It is not in my mind all my sense receptors are telling me. You're a desirable creature. 
you go to my head. I come to my senses. We are sensual creatures. We use the physical world as a door to all communication. Desire is kindled in the heart and loins by information brought in from the senses. We see each other, hear, touch, taste, smell, and then we want each other. Little chemical reactions take place and change our lives. We come together because we want each other so much we can't stop. Sensual input spurs us on. Desire feedback overload, breakthrough, coming. And when we've exhausted desire, we fall through the sky together. It's important to be alone. I keep finding people in places I've known before, but hadn't seen or felt directly for a long time. And every time, it's like the return of a long-lost friend, an intimate friend, a part of me. I feel as though I'm a traveler in this world, making the rounds like a squirrel in winter, discovering treasures I'd forgotten I'd stashed way back last summer sometime. And slowly, all the years of my life are coming back to me. It all comes back. I never could have dreamed my own future. What brought us here tonight? Accident and desire. Courage and curiosity. Affection. Love. We are here because there's nowhere else to go. It is important to be alone. Sometimes it feels good to be alone together. Published by Ent Whistle Books, written by Paul Williams in the Tiny Little Book Coming series of poems. Inflation rate hits 40-year record. This is from uh, the weekend edition of the USA Today. That would be the today's issue. And it's just a collection of some staff wire and reports. Little indication it'll slow anytime soon. With inflation at a 40-year high, Americans are feeling the pinch in just about every facet of daily life. The Labor Department and uh, said Thursday that consumer prices jumped 7.5% last month compared with 12 months earlier the steepest year-over-year -year increase since February 1982. Shortages of supplies and workers, ultra-low interest rates, and robust consumer spending combined to send inflation accelerating in the past year. There's been plenty of finger-pointing from both sides of the political aisle about who's responsible for the spir spiraling costs. But as usual, with issues that have such a broad impact, the causes are complex. In money. <laughs> I like this. Well, no, I don't. But I like this article for reading it. Super Bowl snacks cost more because of inflation. Plan on spending more if avocados, chicken wings, and beer are on your shopping list Sunday. Does that sound familiar? Take grocery bills, for example. There are myriad reasons for higher costs, including the same labor shortages, supply chain bottlenecks, and strong consumer demand that have driven up the cost of food and other goods and services. Toss in the wild cards plaguing the food industry, extreme weather, a surge in exports, COVID-19 outbreaks, volatile consumer eating patterns amid the pandemic. Meanwhile, dire worker shortages, particularly at restaurants, have pushed up wages and the cost of dining out. There are few signs that inflation will slow significantly anytime soon. Most of the factors that have forced up prices since last spring remain in place. Wages are rising at the fastest 
pace in over 20 years. Ports and warehouses are overwhelmed, with hundreds of workers at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, the nation's busiest, out sick last month. Many products and parts remain in short supply as a result. The Fed held its key interest rate near zero in January, but said it will soon be appropriate to raise it, hinting that a rate hike in March is all but certain. The increase would be the first in more than three years and kick off what is likely to be a flurry of three or more quarter point increases this year aimed at reigning sharply in consumer prices. Yes, if we are not 0.75 by the end of the year, I'd be very surprised. And if it doesn't go for a couple more years, I'd be surprised. It's the only thing that can really, well, one of several things that can fix the problem, but one of the only things that will get used. Um, let's see. Who's going to win the big game? Okay. Most people going are from California, Florida, Ohio, and Kentucky. 11% of attendees are coming from Ohio. Okay. That's that. All right. Twitter reports strong growth in revenue. Twitter shares jumped Thursday after it posted strong revenue growth last year and announced a $4 billion share buyback program. That's despite losing money in 2021 and failing, uh, falling short of Wall Street expectations for user growth in the last three months of the year. Revenue increased 37% to $5.08 billion compared to 2020. But the company reported a net loss of $221 million in for the year, largely tied to the settlement of a shareholder lawsuit. Revenue grew in the quarter to... $1.41 billion, up 22% from the same period a year ago. Coca-Cola. <laughs> uh, Coca-Cola and. <laughs> so they edited something and then forgot to remove the second item. Coca-Cola posted better than expected sales in the fourth quarter and the as the Omicron variant, it's funny, the, mo the more you read the newspaper, the more you realize it's just full of uh, mistakes. Anyway, that's what I was saying before. But moving on to gas prices, look at this. Uh, up so much that I'm not even going to read it. Irrelevant. Here's something I know you're going to love. This is from the local paper on Wednesday. Drug house. <laughs> Excuse me. The event is the drug house odyssey. And it's been canceled due to COVID. The Drug House Odyssey, the most important event put on by the Lee County Coalition for a Drug-Free Southwest Florida, has been canceled for the second straight year because COVID concerns in the part of Lee County school system. However, the organization is going to pivot and said to bring the Drug House Odyssey to the classrooms as a way for teachers to discuss alcohol and drugs with their students. The event, which is basically a dare activity, the event which was planned for this coming week was a go as of last week, but with COVID cases still up, Due to the latest variant, the school system said it better to scrub the event again. There were concerns about the buses, and we just want everybody to be safe. We are going to use the United Way money to make a video and have people in it who will be very interesting to the kids, said Deb Camella, executive director for the Lee County Coalition for a Drug-Free Southwest Florida. Camella said she is encouraging the classrooms that she had signed up to be at the Lee County Civic Center next week to watch the video... 
and take the discussion on drugs and alcohol. Camilla added, the video which recreates the Drug House Odyssey play is going to be updated with interesting people appealing, uh, appearing to speak with the youth. NFL player Trey Boston will be in the video as well as United States Representative Brian Donalds. I'm sure he's a cool character who knows all about drugs and how to tell kids to be off them. Also, Lee County Sheriff Carmine Marcheno. We will be taking this in a direction to make it more interesting for the kids because when I showed them in other places, I got feedback. This is why I'm reading it. The kids, uh, from the kids, and they were honest, Camilla said. Quote, we need to make it better. We thought we had really great role models for them. They don't really care. <laughs> Sorry to laugh, but. When asked if the video is going to become the new normal, Camilla said she plans to run the event in person next year. The event, usually at the Civic Center, bought fifth graders, uh, brought fifth graders in from all over Lee County to learn about making the right decisions about drinking and driving and that the wrong decisions can be catastrophic for you and your loved ones. The coalition also held a family night for church groups, families, and scout troops to go through the Odyssey, which typically was held as a mini party. What a party that is. The event planned for Wednesday night was also canceled. The event was put on as a play where kids are seen at a party getting drunk. Someone gets pulled up. Oh, shit. I totally remember seeing this when I was a kid. So this is just what they call it now. Okay. Okay. The event is put on as a play where kids are seen at a party getting drunk. Someone gets pulled over and arrested for drunken driving and a courthouse scene where a judge sentences the person the scene of a terrible accident where someone is critically injured and her friend's decision to drive impaired and the scene in the hospital where the injured person dies. The coalition has typically received assistance from the students from Mariner High School, the Cape Coral Police Department, and the Lee County Sheriff's Office, the Florida Highway Patrol, Lee County EMS, the North Fort Myers or Bayshore Fire Department, everyone else but them or them, and the District Attorney's Office to put the Odyssey together. They have also brought in special guests such as the Bo such as Boston, Trey Boston, to speak to the kids after the play about the right and wrong decisions he and his friends made in their lives. For additional information, please visit drugfreesouthwestflorida.com. You know, I, I always feel a certain way when people make fun of uh, like the D.A.R.E. program and stuff. I always feel a certain way. Now, me, uh, you know, I was a drug user for a long time and an alcohol abuser for a very long time. And I made those mistakes and I went through all these courses and classes and not for a minute in any of those scenarios did I ever think back to D.A.R.E. or the drug program. Never once. Never, never touched me once. And when I was thinking about peer pressure situations and people pressuring me to try things and do things. I always did them on my own time. I always ended up doing them. Never once did I think about how it would feel about when I broke my dare agreement. And at the same time, there's something that being absolutely cynical about this kind of a thing, it just, I feel like this kind of a thing needs to exist, but it needs to exist in the right way. And whatever this is, it's good that at least they're listening to the kids saying that they're not taking it seriously because, you know, someone who means something to them isn't the person saying that what they should hear. I mean, really, prohibition clearly is not the situation. But even if, let's say, let's say there was no more prohibition and everything was freely available without restriction or legal um a threat of, of legal um, punishment, let's say. 
or incarceration. What would what would the D.A.R.E. program look like in a world with no prohibition? I guess that's the question that I, I raise in my mind while reading this and also to you. Let me continue. Something that made me feel a similar way. R. Make-A-Wish surprises Cape Boy. This is also written by Chuck Bellaro, who seems to, along with C.J. Haddad, write basically everything in our local paper. Five-year-old Noah Kingerly loves pirates. He loves playing pirate, dressed in pirate costume, going on exciting adventures and staging imaginary sword fights in his quest to find buried treasure. Noah is also a fighter in real life. For the past two years, he has battled leukemia. He has also had a second love, riding in a friend's golf cart in their neighborhood. On Thursday, the Make-A-Wish Foundation of Southwest Florida brought those two favorite things together, giving Noah a pirate-themed golf cart that has been customized to his specifications and delivered to his house in the Sandoval community. Noah was surprised as he saw the gas-powered street-legal golf cart after waking up from his nap. (laughs) After waking up from his nap. With all the reporters around, he was a little bashful but became a little braver once he got used to them, saying he was all ready to hit the road and stay out all night. If little pirates get a late curfew, he was certainly ready to roll with a full crew. The cart is black metallic with a lift kit, upgraded seats, soundbar, LED underglow, fishing rod holders, and pirate decals throughout. Noah was diagnosed with leukemia at age three. While he has been in remission for two years, there have still been countless trips to the doctor, chemotherapy treatments, multiple blood transfusions, and 15 lumbar punctions, punctures before he finally... Finished his treatments in August. Parents Heather and Jake Kinderly have gone through it all with their son. They agree it was traumatic, but they learned to cope with it as best as they could through support groups. Quote, it was a long road with lots of trips to the hospital. It was difficult at first for him. He had a hard time adjusting to all the doctor visits, Heather said. As time went on, he got used to it. He made connections with the nurses and child life team. It made the experience a little better. Being sick is all he knew. Unfortunately, he was only four or five years old. Hopefully he can move past that. Maybe he'll figure out what normal is. But it is very difficult, Jake said. Golisano Children's Hospital got in touch with Make-A-Wish through his doctor and the child life team. He wanted to be a pirate or something that translates into his love of pirates. I think he connected well with being a pirate. He always said pirates are brave and that's what he was. Pirates get to go on adventures and find treasure doing big battle, during a big battle. Heather said. He was going through this battle, and now he gets the treasures. Fuck. Richard Kelly, CEO of Make-A-Wish Southwest Florida, said every day they can make a wish, a child's wish come true, is a great day. Anytime we get to grant a wish, especially for a child this adorable, it's a special day for us. Noah wished to have a pirate-themed golf cart, and we delivered. You see a smile on his face, Kelly said. Make-A-Wish of Southwest Florida grants about 400 wishes annually in the COVID uh, 400 wishes annually in the COVID era. Before that, it was around 600, Kelly said. Trips to Disney, meeting celebrities, cruises and international travel are the typical wishes children make, with give-back wishes that help others beginning to become with give-back wishes that will help others beginning to, are beginning to become more common. An average wish costs only about $6,000. I add only because, my God. 
There are a lot of things kids wish for. Celebrity wishes are always popular. It's been hampered by COVID, but we do a lot of virtual meet and greets, Kelly said. Wishes span the child's imagination, and we know the impact wishes have. To do that on a daily basis is really gratifying. And then there's an inset photo of Jake Kinderly, his son Noah, and his uh, Noah's mom going for a ride in the golf cart. I don't know. I just needed a little bit of that today. Here's a quick something from the uh, Kanye Nast Traveler, March 2022, page 45. True story. Las Vegas weddings. Viva Las Weddings. Brennan Paul, an Elvis impersonator and co-owner of Graceland Wedding Chapel and officiating, uh, unofficiating a most memorable ceremony. Las Vegas is the wedding capital of the world, and getting married here is a bucket list trip for many couples. I bought the Graceland Wedding Chapel 19 years ago, but got ordained when same-sex marriage became legal. So many of the other chapels closed up when that happened. The ministers refused to do it. Corrupt souls. I grew up in the punk scene in L.A. in the 1980s. I played dead Kennedys in my chapel. So many of my friends are gay. A ton of my same-sex couples travel here from Texas. It isn't easy to be gay and get married here, uh, get married there. But truth is, people travel from here from all over the world. I married folks from Brazil, Dubai, Germany. Before COVID-19, I was marrying 4,500 couples a year, every one of them from somewhere else. One couple a few years ago came in from the Netherlands. He was dying of cancer. This would be their last trip together. They drove what was left of Route 66 and ended up here to get married in Vegas. When we said, in sickness and in health, I choked up. It was heartbreaking, but it was what we wanted, and we made it happen. Read him a little bit more of Paul Williams. This is from Das Energy. This is the most famous... Uh, Writings. I just want to start at the beginning because I, I just feel like uh, the metaphor is, is thick, and I need a thick metaphor right now. The only sin is self-hatred. It is the act of negation. Its opposite is faith. There is no such thing as evil. The concept of evil is a crutch. We will not heal until we toss away the crutch. To heal is to become healthier. To become healthier is to enjoy a freer flow of energy. It is the flow of energy that gets us high. To perceive something as evil is to imagine that that object, that person, is not a part of me. He's become something else. To perceive evil is to attempt to deny that we are all one. We have a myth that relates to this. The myth of God and Satan. The fallen angel, Lucifer cast out of heaven for disobeying God. God who is good. Lucifer who is not good. Not God. Evil. But who is God trying to kid? God is all. There is nothing that is not God. Lucifer is God. There is no distance. One cannot fall from grace. One can pretend, perhaps, that that brother over yonder is not me. He is something else. He is everything. Of myself, 
that I cast out of myself. One can pretend. But not for long. There is no way to cast out any part of oneself. Systems of energy contain no garbage. There is no such thing as garbage. Dear God, the jig is up. Stop chasing your tail. Embrace yourself. Lucifer returns to heaven. Let there be dancing in the streets. The only sin is self-hatred. We call it sin, but its true name is delusion. We have got to get ourselves back to the garden. Easily done. We are in the garden. Let us open our eyes. If you let go, something will happen. Fear is always anticipation of the unknown. Most human energy flow problems relate to the inability to relax. Fear of letting go. If you let go, something will happen. Fear of the unknown. Rational mind wants to make a deal. First, tell me what will happen, and then I'll let go. Fuck you! No one knows what's going to happen, ever. The future, next moment, is unknowable. Unknown. Rational mind won't believe that. He's afraid to. Sometimes it is enlightening to have a word for God. Sometimes it is blinding. If you make a list of words for God, you will have a list of all words. You will not have God. Energy flows through all things. It rests in none of them. I think I'll stop there for today. That little segment. Um, let me close out on this. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, sex after 70 or Girl Scout cookies. Or the Peloton guy losing all his money. Or mm, Tesla getting a subpoena from the SEC. So hard to choose. Uh, hmm, Peter Thiel divesting from Facebook because he's going to become a politician. Okay. I figured it out. Okay. This is how we'll wrap it up. This is not the final story, but it almost is. Woman falls to her death from rising drawbridge in Florida. Andrew Mara, Palm Beach Post, USA Today, Palm Beach, Florida. A woman fell to her death Sunday afternoon from a rising drawbridge. West Palm Beach police said the woman was walking off the bridge with a bicycle and was within 10 feet of the barrier arms that halt traffic when the drawbridge started to rise, sending her careening into an open chasm. A man standing on the other side of the barrier arms grabbed her but could not hold on, police said. She plummeted more than 50 feet. She was walking her bike from east to west and had almost reached the furthest point of the movable span when it went up, police spokesman Mike Jackals said. He tried to help her, but he wasn't able to hold on to her, and she fell about five to six stories below. Detectives are investigating why the drawbridge rose before all pedestrians had a chance to clear it. I would add that these are usually manually operated. The accident happened shortly after 1 p.m. The bridge was closed for nearly six hours as rescue workers recovered the woman's body and detectives and crime scene investigators inspected the scene. Police declined to identify the woman Sunday. 
Police described the bridge tender as distraught when officers and rescue workers were on the scene. The tender's actions before the bridge opened will be a focus of the investigation, Jockles said. The bridge is maintained by the State Department of Transportation, but tended by staff from a private contractor, he said. This is not a problem for me since I ordered my cookies from uh, (laughs) Trevor, but uh, cookie delays turn Girl Scouts into economics experts. Trying to meet targets, sellers feel effects of supply chain woes and inflation by Rachel Wolf. Girl Scouts are earning a new badge in global economic turmoil. A month into national cookie selling sensation, Scouts have felt the effects of supply chain woes and inflation. Some troops are grappling with shortages of flavor from s'mores to Samoas, plus the occasional angry grown-up customer ticked off about price increases, sometimes from $4 to $5 or $6 a box. The bakery that supplies the cookies, 75 out of the 111 geographic areas or councils where Girl Scouts sell, is experiencing production delays, the Girl Scouts of the USA says. We anticipate some councils will be largely affected, while other councils and girls may not reach their cookie goals. The organization... The organization said of Little Brownie Bakers, which is located in Louisville, Kentucky, Little Brownie Bakers did not respond to a request for comment, as they probably shouldn't. Cookie shortages are undermining fundraising efforts for the regional councils that rely on sales of the treats for roughly 70% of their operating revenue or about $800 million annually. Each Girl Scout... I flipped A10. I will point that out. This is the only thing I'm getting out of the Wall Street Journal, pretty much. Gotta know about those cookies. How each Girl Scout troop uh, decides to spend its cookie earnings with the money typically going to scout activities, charitable projects, and financial aid. Girl Scouts of the USA is focused on ensuring that existing supply of cookies is evenly distributed among troops, says Communications Chief Kelly Parisi. She says the National Army of the organization can't fill holes in troops' budgets. Like lots of in-person businesses that went digital in the pandemic, the Girl Scouts took to more cookie selling online, as I did, when cookie... (laughs) when covid kept them from going door to door sales remained relatively steady at just under 200 million boxes the girl scout organization said 10 year old bailey 10 year old bailey laycook set a goal of selling 1000 boxes this year has sold 420 blaze it she has had to hold off on soliciting sales in person while she awaits on more inventory cookie season in los angeles where Bailey lives, runs only for another month. Cookie season is recognized nationally from January through April, but local timing varies. I'm worried people who have a goal over 700 won't make it to their goal because of the shortage, the fifth grader says. If the cookies run out, the customers will be waiting. Some councils are extending the selling season while waiting on more inventory. For cookie lovers who ask why they can't order their favorites, Bailey is ready with an explanation. Sorry, we've sold too many that we can't, uh, that we can't supply anymore. Being the popularist cookies means they run out way too quickly, she says. Oh, my God. And uh, I ordered four boxes of Thin Mints and four boxes of the Trefoils, but, you know, I don't, I don't think that impacted your supply, hopefully. Bailey's mother, Ellie Laycook, oversees cookie sales for Bailey's Troop. She says many local distribution centers, also known as cookie cupboards, have been struggling to keep up with demand. She recently drove 40 minutes to one uh, cupboard in the area that had the seven flavors she needed in stock. She snagged some of the last boxes of peanut butter 
Tagalongs, and Samoas, which I'm not a fan of. Uh, there have been a chain of troop leaders saying, I heard from this other troop leader that you have cookies. Do you have cookies you can spare? You know what I'm saying? No one can resist saying whether or not they like or don't like the, a Girl Scout cookie when it is named. I can't believe I just said that. There have been a chain of troop leaders saying, I heard this from other troop leaders, that you have cookies. Do you have cookies you can spare? The 36-year-old religious school director said. So far, her troop has helped five other groups who didn't have enough to fulfill their orders. It's part of the Girl Scout law, she says. <laughs> Bailey had been trying to push the less popular cookies since she has in stock such as shortbread trefoils, there we go, and dosy dos on wary customers. Her strategy is making, cust- uh, making drawings of the cookies on the sidewalk with an arrow pointing to her stand and having her six-year-old brother hold a sign that reads, Cookie Crossing. Oh. We encourage everyone to try different flavors if their first choice isn't available, and we appreciate their support of our girls' entrepreneurship, Girl Scouts of the USA says. The newest Girl Scout cookie, a brownie-inspired dessert called the Adventureful, has been particularly hard to find. Many troops, including Bailey's, sold out of all their Adventurefuls in a couple days. The Girl Scouts organization said new cookies typically sell out quickly due to increased excitement and the difficulty of anticipating demand. Girl Scouts often earn financial literacy badges during cookie season to sew onto their uniforms, just like they might for good sportsmanship or first aid skills. One badge, called Cookie CEO, teaches business excuse me, teaches brownies how to run their own businesses. Another cookie market researcher prompts cadet-level scouts to investigate what sets your product apart. A budgeting badge sponsored by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis asks his to, quote, define and give examples of opportunity costs. East Rochester, New York, troop leader Samantha Sapola has given a group of 10 and 11-year-olds lessons on inflation to explain why cookies have gotten more expensive. Quote, it's insane to watch adults interrogate children about pricing. The 30-year-old home health aide says of potential buyers hectoring little girls. <laughs> Fuck you, number one. Quote, we just told them there's a large demand for cookies and so only so many of you can sell. There's only so many you can sell in a certain period of time. Uh, when you need, so when you need more of something, there actually has to be some. There you go. Her daughter, Lily Saprola, hasn't necessarily enjoyed the econ lesson. It's boring, the fifth grader says. Quite. It is. Just listen to this podcast for an example. Cricket Winters, a first grader in Tallahassee, Florida, says her dad has been reach- reaching. Hmm. Her dad has been teaching her why grocery store shelves are emptier than usual and why she could struggle to meet her goal of selling 600 boxes. Quote, workers are getting sick and they have to go home and there's less supply, she says. Yes. Teach your daughter about workers. Cricket has been running a stand since Saturday when cookie season started. We have to sell them early so that we have enough, she says. She accepts cash or Venmo. (laughs) Fucking love that. Oh, I love it so much. I love it. I mean, I really do. No, I I really do. I'm not not being ironic or whatever. Sarcastic. I really do. I, th- I think that every if everyone in America knew how to run and manage a business, every single category of person was equally empowered to run and manage a business themselves, create a business even, the uh, our country would be a better place. And also less obsessed with um, creating businesses. If everyone knew how, less people would actually... Uh, 
if everyone knew about how to create a business for themselves, everyone would be happy and have the opportunity to create a business for themselves. And that's the end of my statement. It doesn't solve a problem. It just means that uh, everyone will know the true nature of the American dream. Before David and Anne married, they hadn't ventured beyond touching. Old Flames. What's the secret to good sex after 70? It's about openness and adapting to the ways that bodies change. By Maggie Jones. And these scintillating photographs you don't, don't get to see are by Marilyn Minter. And I may not get to finish this one because I think this is the one I'll probably have to run out on. But um, I'm going to read as much as I can. And let me tell you one thing. By the time I get done with this uh, little segment, I'm actually I may even just read like the the Anne and David segment. I have read this with someone else, and this is one of the funniest things I've ever read. So congratulations to you for a writing this article into the ether and putting it out there to you, um, Maggie Jones. You're a great writer. This is a fucking amazing article, and you've hidden so much subtext. It's like delicious. Um, but also I just want to say, uh. Dave, if you're listening out there, David, you fucking suck. All right. It was 1961. She was 21. He was 22. And they were raised in conservative Catholic homes. Quote, Thursday and Friday, sex is a sin. And then you get married on Saturday, David said. What's a clitoris? I don't know about that. From the outset of their marriage, the two explored sex together. Oh, it's three o'clock again. From the outset of their marriage, the two explored sex together. David was more lustful and eager. Anne was more hesitant, at times leaning toward accommodation rather than enthusiasm. A few years after their wedding, they had their first child, and David began traveling half the month for his job. Hmm. Over the next five years, they had two more children, and Anne sometimes felt exhausted, managing homework, schedules, driving, emergencies, meltdowns. She loved David and liked sex with him but it often fell lower on the list of what she needed. A good night's sleep, an arm around her shoulder, no expectations. Anne also never fully escaped the feeling that sex was taboo. We weren't allowed to even think about it, she said about her parents' approach to sex. In the early part of her marriage, she felt horrified about oral sex and struggled to have orgasms. Quote, I don't think I was what David had hoped for, she had told me. David and Anne are in their 80s now, and they recently told me that at this stage in life, sex is the best it has ever been. But getting there took effort. David, a curious, gregarious bear of a man, always believed sex was important to happiness, and he regularly sought out tips for improving it. Hmm. In the late 1970s, he read a magazine article about, quote, a girl's best friend. A vibrator called a prelude. He bought one for Anne. She asked me to use her middle name to protect her privacy. David asked to be identified by his first name. This is in parentheticals. And I will say that all of the explanation of, you might be like, hmm, yes, yeah, mm-hmm. The writer will get to all that. It didn't go so well at first. For Anne, it was a reminder of who she saw, or, or what she saw as her own deficiency. Hmm. She imagined that other women orgasm more quickly while she needed mechanical intervention. But David encouraged her to try the vibrator on her own and they began occasionally using it during sex. Sex was great at times, like when Anne took a human sexuality class one summer, by which time the kids were teenagers and more independent. In the evenings after class, she and David sat on their front stoop overlooking a park, and she shared what she was learning about desire and the physiology of sex. It became their foreplay, 
But soon, David began working longer hours, and Anne started a job in the evenings. Their busy schedules pulled them back into the routine of discordant desires. At the lowest point, sex dropped to a couple times a month, far too infrequent for David. Quote, we were going through the motions, he said. By the time David was in his 50s, he had had two affairs, as you may have expected, in large part because the women made him feel desired. I editorialized, as you may expect it. I did not mean to lead into that part, but... And also had a brief affair in response to his cheating. Then, in his 60s, David retired from a career that had defined him, where he was surrounded by co-workers who loved him. And, meanwhile, was increasingly out of the house, volunteering in their community. Eager for more attention and affection than Anne was able to give him, David had a third affair, this time more emotion- a more emotionally involved one, with a woman who was as enthusiastic about sex as he was. He never had to hint that he wanted it. He never had to ask. She was game for pretty much anything. Anne was furious when she found out, but still she didn't want to lose him. She pushed him to end the relationship. The other woman told David he had to choose. At the precipice of separation, Anne and David went to therapy, and slowly they became more honest with each other. Anne talked about her anger over the affairs and her withholding of sex because of them. David expressed his hopes that he could bring the kind of sexual excitement he found outside of the marriage into their relationship. If she wanted to hold on to him, Anne decided she needed to try opening up. David, you may ask the question, why was she trying to hold on to him? David worked to be less expectant, and slowly in their 70s, they moved towards more intimate and compelling sex. Quote, the affair was the best and worst thing that's happened to us, David told me one afternoon last fall. I'm not so sure about that, Anne said. We were speaking over Skype on their 60th wedding anniversary. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I think that tells the story. We were speaking over Skype on their 60th wedding anniversary, and the couple sat down side by side at the kitchen counter in a house they designed together 30 years ago, overlooking a lake. As they talked, Anne occasionally put her head on David's shoulder. Behind them was a bank of windows, and in one corner a vase of dried sunflowers. Anne, who has bright blue eyes and a sweep of silver hair that falls onto one side of her face, has a measured way of talking. She was a private person, but honest and searching. We needed a jump start somehow, she said before pointingly added, pointedly adding, but that wasn't the only way to do it. Aging has diminished them physically. Anne had colon cancer. David has spinal stenosis and uses a walker. But in these later years of life, they've consciously held on to their intimacy by creating a different kind of sexuality than when their bodies were strong in life. Most Sunday mornings after coffee and fruit, David goes to their bedroom. He pops a Viagra, straightens out their bed cover, showers, and when he's ready, calls for Anne. Their phones remain in the kitchen, their dog outside the bedroom door. They cuddle and touch each other. Sometimes they mutually masturbate, while they start, uh, which they started doing in just the past decade. Anne still has her prelude, which David has rewired over the years, along with a few other vibrators that they use regularly. Even with Viagra, David can't always have a full erection, but they usually have intercourse regardless. Sometimes he has a dry orgasm where he doesn't produce enough semen to ejaculate. The missionary position no longer works for them. David has to put on, uh, David has put on weight and would be too heavy. Instead, he often lies behind Anne and puts one leg between hers and another to the side. <coughs> Excuse me. 
I apologize for that. Um, instead, he often lies uh, behind Anne and puts one leg between hers and one other to the side. Okay. They explore and try new things. Last summer, they began doing what's known as edging. <laughs> we shouldn't laugh. During oral sex, David's, or maybe we should based on David, but they seem to love each other. David sp- stops just when Anne is on the verge of climaxing. He repeats it a couple of times to build up the intensity before she finally has an orgasm. Sex is more relaxed than it was in their 20s and 30s when they had so much responsibility and so little time. And it's deeper because they feel more connected. We nearly lost each other, Anne said. She emphasizes that the relationship is far from perfect. They argue plenty. But she has overcome some of the sexual barriers from the past and feels more present during sex. Much of it is related to their awareness that time is running out, which makes intimacy feel more sacred. Now at the end of sex, one of them says a version of, Thank you, God, for one more time. Then they make brunch and talk about their kids, the grandkids, their plans to move into a smaller home. They know that sex might not stay true to the same, might not stay the same as they continue to age. There will come a time, David wrote me in an email, when one of us will say, I'm sorry, but would you be hurt if we just cuddle? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is getting weaker. Yeah, I might come back to that at some point. Okay, sorry for the long pause. I was reading ahead. I'm going to read a little bit more from Paul Williams in his book, Apple Bay, or Life on the Planet. Page 15, the bottom here. I'm beginning to understand why I'm here. Some days the water is colder than others, and strangely enough, those are the days I like best. I dive in quickly, not daring to hesitate, and swim for dear life away from the shore. When I've exhausted that first burst of energy, I turn on my back, feel the comforting water around me, look back at the trees and the rocks in the distance, and feel strong and secure in my independence. I'm trying to live a life in which I do no damage to my environment, and it's not easy, and it's not enough. I don't drive a car, I seldom even even travel by car or jet, and I use no electricity. Only our power tool here at Apple Bay is the outboard on our rowboat, which engine I don't use when fishing, but only every two weeks or so when I get to the mail. I contribute as little to the growth economy as anyone in this hemisphere. (laughs) Still, I don't feel like a saint. I don't cut down trees, though I would if I had to, thinning carefully with uh, using an axe and a handsaw, but even by sawing up windfall for my firewood, I deprive the forest of the fertile soil those logs would eventually become. And what do I give in return? We take starfish and seaweed from the ocean to put in our garden, and I suppose you get a pretty uh, comic picture of me waking up at night to worry about these things. But I do worry. I just wonder, where do we fit in? I know we do, just like every other creature on this planet. We have a place. We fit in somehow. It's an interesting, outdated... Well, once again, this was written in 1976. Really, throughout the uprise of us feeling like we really fitted into an ecosystem, which we don't. We created the concept of an ecosystem for us to fit in which is 
something on its own. But unlike the other creatures on this planet, we are conscious, or think we are, of our existence. And that tempts me to think it may require a conscious effort for us to fulfill our part of the bargain. Exactly. Which is arrogant, (laughs) suggesting that God needs our help to make it happen, until you remember that we are God. There is no other entity that cares about us, presumably, or life on this planet. We have an awesome responsibility. We have to find we have to find out what we're doing here. One thing I know, if we can't solve the problem here on Earth, then we're never going to get to the stars. That's something man hasn't always known. It's something I didn't know 10 years ago. When I was young, I read a lot of science fiction. Still do. Still am. Most of the stories took it for granted that we were going out into space. So, like any good American boy, I grew up with the myth of the frontier. Hmm. Hmm. I even remember, in 1963, at a science fiction convention, telling a girl named Bonnie Sue that we didn't have to worry about atomic warfare destroying us all because, in short, as the weapons have gotten bigger, so have the battlefields. Hmm. The lessons of history. Nuclear weapons for interplanetary war. Somehow, that comforted me. That, and a pretty girl. But I do remember one thing that I said then, walking in the streets of Washington, D.C., that still rings true to me now. I said that there is nothing more absolute about the death of a species than the death of a man, and that the ultimate weapon has been with us a long, long time. I wonder what's become of Bonnie Sue. She was more than half-cat and, a f- and fond of Gagan. The frontier. Remember the new frontier? I believe it turned out to be Southeast Asia. We're not going to escape into space, the American way. Use up one farm and burn, an- burn another out of virgin forest. There you go. Don't worry about the garbage. Leave it on the moon. Timely. Timely. Timely as that uh, rocket is about to, that um, second stage is about to, like, nail the moon around the backside. We are already in space, swinging around the sun at 1,000 miles an hour. If you want to look at it through Copernicus's eyes, and we're not going to Alpha Centauri until we learn how to live in spaceships. And the spaceship we're on comes first. The space program achieved its purpose, the discovery of planet Earth. There it was, when they looked back over their shoulders, the whole damn thing, hanging in mid-sky as though it had been there all along. And at that moment, and a number and a number of other recent revealing moments, people began to realize that we're here on this thing, together. That frontier you're standing on is my backyard. Who was that turn-of-the-century economist who envisioned imperialism as a search for a place to dump the excessive productivity of... <laughs> dump the garbage? Executive, excessive productivity, he writes. Of course, excess productivity is stored as value and money. That's where he's getting at. Which you may know. Which you do know. Because I trust you, the listener. Well, it's all come true, and we've reached the moment of ultimate garbage crisis. Soap suds coming out of the water faucets. Wendell Wilkie, One World, The Frontier Bubble, The Growth Economy, has burst, and all we can do is save the bubble of the biosphere. They're murdering automobiles in the streets. I didn't read about this in science fiction. (laughs) They're murdering automobiles in the streets. It's so funny to think. 1976. But if you can't expand outward, where are you going to expand? That isn't the question. What are you going to expand? Consciousness. That's almost the answer, but it might be a tautology. It's not enough to be aware of the crisis, but you have to be aware of who you are, which means staring God in the eye. And brother, that's the ultimate terror. Wouldn't it be easier to just get on another planet and start the whole thing over? 
We all live on the edge of the ocean, and if we want to burn gasoline, we all have to swim in oil slicks. If a leader arises strong enough to lead us out into space without facing up to the music here, <sighs> quote, I will assassinate him myself, he says. Who knows? Maybe that's what I'm here for. In the morning, I get out of bed. What do I have to do today? What do I have to do today? I will breathe, drink, eat. If not today, sometime soon, get out of the rain. I will do my best to stay alive. I can't help it. It's a sort of compulsion. In the morning, I get into the water. What am I doing here? Well, I always do this. It's a discipline. It strengthens my arms, my self-confidence, my awareness. It celebrates the start of the day. It's non-productive, curiously enough. That means it's harmless. What hath the Protestant, <laughs> what hath the Protestant ethic wrought? People on this planet seem to feel they have to do something to make the day worthwhile. What sort of things do they feel they have to do? They make money, produce food, take care of the children, produce some work of art, reach an awareness, ball somebody. What a list! We're going to have to think carefully to sort this one out. First, let's consider our survival. It seems to be deeply rooted in us. We probably can't get rid of it. Not easily. Seems like a good base to start from. What are we doing here? Staying alive. Okay. Food. Well, food survival. But let's be cautious here. How much do we really have to eat to stay alive? How great a variety of foods? How much of our food production efforts are for luxury? Or make work? Well, I know we don't need Coca-Cola, but I don't want to be hasty. This food question, what do we need, is a Pandora's box. Even before bringing health into it. Or moral issues. It gets weird. We'll come back to this one. Then there's money. How much do you need to stay alive? Oh no, you can't just ask it like that. There's socioeconomic, political... Wait a minute. Right now, there are even seven of us here at Apple Bay living on $60 a month. Not counting land taxes. That's a whole other matter, if anything is. But the welfare state, on the one hand, and the immortality of participating in, any econ in the economy, on the other hand, and the imminent collapse of the system on some further hand... <laughs> make the whole money question pretty iffy and so whatty. One thing worth saying is I do know people who are living without money and others who are awfully damn close, and more all the time. It can be done. Then there's real responsibility, real and imagined. Commitment and duty, intuitive and culture-imposed. How much taking care of do the kitties need, etc., etc. Most of us use responsibility as a cop-out. The need to produce art. A girl told me today, a visitor, passing through, everything seems much more beautiful to me before I touch it. I guess that's why she doesn't. She didn't touch me. Oh, boy. <sighs> well, self-effacing. She was talking about a piece of wood she found and the loveliest piece of wood she'd ever seen until she carved it. So we both agreed. We weren't sure where. Hmm. Let me start this again. She was talking about a piece of wood she found, and the loveliest piece of wood she'd ever seen, until she carved it. So we both agreed we weren't sure where art was at. Another place to ask, what are we doing here? Has man ever improved a forest, a desert, a sea, aesthetically or otherwise? Dunno. As far as reaching an awareness, is that really something I have to do before nightfall? Ever stop to think what an ego trip those dudes are on who ask about how many ego levels they've transcended? And sex. Well, sometimes I need it. More than food. And overpopulation and the birth control dilemma make the whole thing very relevant to the crisis of the last frontier. Stay tuned. I'm getting confused. Looks like I'm trying to sort out the human experience. 
You wouldn't let me undertake a thing like that, would you, dear reader? I'm going back to bed. This is a book about how I live. I live near the water. Life on the planet is life on the shore of a sea. And I leave you there, dear reader, dear listener. We have experimented and experienced so many things together. And I, I, I leave you with one essential question. Truly. And that is, will the world be a better place um, with you in it? And how can the future be better by your hands? And uh, there you go. Enjoy the rest of your day. How about this? We're just going to listen to some of this now. Sounds pretty good to me.
Oh yeah, you stuck around so you get to listen to this. Maybe we can get one more. episode the next day so I'm not sorry for that here's a three hour episode apparently looking at the clock hope you have a great weekend oh and uh, don't forget to call 505-557-7932 with all your thoughts and comments I will never pick up the phone and answer it, but you may leave a voicemail. So, and I may or may not ever recognize it on the show. I think it's a good policy. But yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. There we go. Good night. Good morning. Good evening. Goodbye. Clearly, I'm a great DJ. But here you go.